0: What I'm going to do to you now? No? Did you ever see an animal skin, Jarmar? <laughs> That's what I'm going to do to you now. Tear the skin from your body. Slowly.
1: Bit by bit. Staying a little harder, honey. Dracula, 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 cha-cha-cha. Some folks say he's wild. But he can't help having bats in his belt. he's a crazy messed up child. <laughs> Dracula, 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 cha-cha-cha. We're good for one another.
0: Hello everybody, <laughs> welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. Welcome back to the big horror movie show. This is part two. If you uh, haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend that you do. But for those of you who are just skipping ahead to the good ones, uh, the ones that uh, got more votes, let me go ahead and recap real quick what we're doing here. We asked Directors Club listeners to send in their top ten favorite horror movies list, um, but there were 190 films that they could not include. Um, those films are listed on a letterbox list. Uh, the, let- the link to that will be in the show notes. Um, and what we received uh, in turn was uh, 313 different movies um, from top, from maybe 20 top 10 lists, maybe more than that. Um, a lot of those movies only got one vote. Uh, in fact, 221 of them only got one vote. That means they only showed up on one list. That all was covered in part one. This is part two. And now we're getting to the really good stuff. Now we're... Now we're really sinking our teeth into the, uh, the, the hidden classics The things that uh, didn't get into last year's episode But the things that everyone can kind of agree with That the, there's some real meat on these bones um, And helping me to dissect that meat is Gabe Powers Welcome back, Gabe Thank you for having me again uh, we, just, we just recorded yesterday and I slept and again you slept again. Congratulations, Gabe. Three you, meals. Uh, you know what? Spoke. Your schedule, your your sleeping schedule is impeccable. We it get is. a lot of it we is. get a lot of guests who have been up for three days or so. That's probably <laughs> because we, uh, we we find a lot of our guests in meth clinics. But like, <laughs> yes. but but you're here and uh, you're the you're sort of the horror expert. Um, these films, um, pretty much all of them, one of us has seen. There are two films that got two votes that neither of us got a chance to see. Uh, we tried, but uh, we just we just couldn't get around to it. Um, so we're going to be talking about those very briefly. But the rest of them, we actually have first-hand knowledge. Um, and a lot of them are quite good. I, I couldn't remember, actually, what was on my top ten list. And you didn't even send in a top ten list this year. No, I didn't. Um, so I, I think maybe a couple of my films... On my top ten list, were only got where I was the only one voted for them, but I think most of them ended up getting multiple votes. So we're probably going to be talking about a lot of stuff I'm really into uh, this uh, this episode as well. But you know what? Uh, enough chitter chatter. Let's get right into it. Um, we're going to start chronological order. We're going to start with everything that got two votes, and we're going to move up to three votes, four votes, five votes. Keep going in chronological order that way. So we're going to start 1921. The Phantom Carriage. This is I, – and I feel, I, feel, I feel like a heel because is this a Swedish film? I forget what country
1: this is from. <laughs> oh, crap. I'm supposed to know. Uh, I believe
0: it's a Swedish silent film. Yeah. Um, very interesting ethereal imagery. Uh, one of the most striking things about this movie to me actually is its structure as it's nested. It's, it's got a weird nested, very kind of modern structure where it's a story being told within a story within a story. Um, about this myth of on new year's Eve the last person to die in the year has to become the person who drives death 's carriage and pick up all of the and pick up all of the souls that die the neck the following year until the last person who dies that year um so that is sort of the fable that 's going into this story, but there 's also this tale of this social worker on her deathbed and these Uh, drunks who are telling this story and there's another story involving like an an abusive alcoholic and they all sort of dovetail into each other. It's a, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a horror movie. It's not scary. It's not about billing attention. There's no monster, but it's actually, what's interesting is it's adapted from an anti, uh, it's adapted from a hygiene pamphlet. If you can believe that. (laughs) I didn't know that yeah it was because and and it kind of ultimately feels like a uh, educational film about like the dangers of alcoholism and temperance and uh, and the dangers of of like uh, having uh, I think I think consumption I forget what disease the the guy has but at one point he just walks up to his children and coughs in their faces while they're in their crib (laughs) it's it's a really cool movie it's got some amazing imagery I wouldn't call it a horror movie, personally. Did you it's, look it up? Is this Swedish?
1: It is Swedish. Yeah. Okay. It's, sweet. I think it's an incredibly creepy movie. Uh, you I do. Saw it pretty recently, it did. It did get. It, it. didn't actually frighten me, but it definitely affected me. So you could. It's an older horror movie. It's a different. Yeah, fair story. enough. Yeah. Fair enough. And it has a scene that uh, I, like I said, I saw it recently. It, it almost shot for shot. This reused for the shining when uh Jack uh does the whole here's Johnny bit.
0: Oh yeah, the the bursting open of the door.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh there on, on YouTube somewhere there is a comparison. And uh, also this is and in Phantom Carriage, the character who's breaking through the door
0: is also an alcoholic who has been shut out yeah. by his wife and children. So um certainly something that Kubrick was looking at. Yeah. Um, we're going to leave the twenties now. We're going into the thirties. Vampire, 1932. I haven't seen this though. I would really, really like to. Uh, this is who directed
1: this? Uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer. Yes, this is a Dreyer film. Is this mm-hmm. silent? I believe it. Ha- uh, it is sound. Is 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 uh, some sound? Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah. Because I always thought it was a silent film, but 1932 is too late, really, for a silent film. Yeah. Uh I think it uh it was claimed to fame was it was the first multi language sound movie, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Interesting. What, so what is is obviously a, a vampire film.
1: Yeah, it's a sorta of generic as far as the story goes, uh where uh peop, uh, uh people in I am trying to remember to tell you the truth. Uh <laughs> it's a uh, it's it's mostly just these incredibly evocative shots is what really sticks with it and, and some really disturbing uh, imagery uh, and it's you know it's got your your outsider character that slowly discovers that he's in a situation where there are vampires and he has to learn vampire lore because uh, that's you know still today you have characters who have never heard of vampires in the movies uh, <laughs> yeah. that they're in.
0: They, they always have to go to the library and discover oh garlic.
1: Yeah, or or what's a vamp? Oh, it's like a bat. Oh, um.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, and it's uh, or they lot. or they have to employ a uh, late night horror movie
1: host in the in the case of Friday yes night. or that. Um, and it's and it's uh, yeah, it's kind of a nice twist on the vampire stuff. Um, and it's uh, it does a lot with the um, what I, I, on, on True Blood they called it glamouring, the the way vampires can. Uh, hypnotize people, which is, you know, something that's definitely in, uh, the, the Todd Browning Dracula 2. Um, but if for, it's, 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 it's really a a gorgeous movie. Um, and there are some, like, there are, there are bits that are, that are deeply disturbing to look at. Um...
0: it's interesting because uh, Dreyer made uh, Passion of Joan of Arc, which uh, is a really stirring, very powerful, very brutal film. That yes. if that movie came out today with a with the st- with a modern style, it feels like the kind of movie that people might put on their top ten lists and send to us. Yeah, and
1: and, and, and it, yeah, in the long run, I think that I actually find Passion of Joan of Arc more frightening because it has the the emotional scarring thing going on. And also
0: just, and the implications of torture are so brutal
1: in that. Yes,
0: definitely. Um, So that is Vampyr. We're going to skip over the 30s and the rest of the 30s, and we're going to skip over the 40s as well. We're going right to 1959, House on Haunted Hill. William Castle, probably the best William Castle movie. I would agree, yeah. Uh, The thing about William Castle is his. His reputation, and sort of rightly so, because it's it's just fun to talk about, is that he was this like sort of schlockmeister who came up with just these absurd gimmicks to try to you know get uh, trick people into seeing his movies. You know, including in this film, it's a merjo, which basically means that a plastic skeleton came out on a pulley at a, at the end of the film and and flew over the audience. And more, mo, more notoriously, the Tingler with the with the electric joy buzzer seats. Uh, tingler got voted last year. Um, but I think the thing that William Castle doesn't get credit for is that his films are actually they often work and they actually have really creepy moments. And House on a Haunted Hill has a couple moments that are just really creepy and unnerving. Particularly the scene where the the ghost, um, the quote unquote ghost, that floating outside of the woman's window uh, that has bars on it, and she sort of, like, has this ethereal, like, rope coming out of her that's, like, that's going through the bars and tying around the woman. It's this, it's a very surreal moment, and it's, it's really creepy.
1: Yeah, it's got a good jump scare, too, pretty, pretty early jump scare with uh, the, which looks silly in retrospect, I suppose, but it has the kind of witch woman, and she's actually, just when, when uh, the heroine turns around, she's just standing there, and then she sort of floats away, and you can kind of tell that they're wheeling her out on a skateboard or something, but yeah, it's it still works, I think.
0: What's so funny about that is it, I saw it coming because it's just sort of a, a famous shock moment in this movie. Yeah. So the first time I saw this movie, it didn't frighten me because I was like, all right, here comes this, the great scene. Oh, yeah, that was cool. But I watched this not too long ago with my partner, Regina, and Regina knew nothing about this movie. And that, that scene scared the shit out of them. <laughs> that, yeah. that really, like, for a 1959 movie to have a jump scare that still works? Yeah. So good. And, and what's funnier is that in the story of the movie, that's just a maid. That's not a, supposed to be a ghost or a witch right. or anything. You just haven't seen her before and she's just a fucking weirdo, I guess, who stands who can, behind who... people posing in a creepy witch-like grimace.
1: And who can walk very smoothly.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's,
1: it's a really good combination of spooky and fun. Uh, it's really funny too. The scenes where, uh, where, uh, Price and I can't remember the actress who plays his wife, were there, uh, passive aggressively threatening to kill each other. Yeah. Um, it's some of the best Price dialogue you'll it, get in any of his movies, I think. Oh
0: yeah, it's very, it's a very sardonic movie and that's probably why Vincent Price was in, you know, two of these because he's just such, he's such a good match for William Castle's dark sense of humor, um...
1: It it's, definitely doesn't depend on – part of the way it has such a shitty uh, – it's, it's one of Castle's dumbest uh, uh, gimmicks, but it's totally not necessary to the movie, which is why I think it endures where some of the other ones don't yeah, quite work because yeah, they don't like, have the gimmick anymore. If you don't have 3D glasses
0: or, or you know the, the weird weird ghost glasses. I don't yeah, know. if you don't have those weird look through this one to see the ghost, look through this one to not see the ghost. 13 Ghosts is just kind of incomprehensible. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, the tingler, there's that moment where the movie just kind of stops dead so that they can shock seats in the audience. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, this movie doesn't really have anything like that, though. I will say last time I watched this, I was trying to put myself into the position of someone watching this movie and I think it's still goofy. It's just a, you know, it's a plastic skeleton on a pulley that comes out of the side of the screen, but I think actually the way he achieves it, um, um, is interesting formally because what he does is, it's this very long, languid scene where the skeleton rises up and is just creeping towards um, Vincent Price's wife, and it's it's this long, prolonged scene. It's it's very it's reminiscent of like an Italian zombie movie where she's just, just kind yeah. of motionless, and the camera just keeps getting closer and closer to the skeleton, and uh, or the, I should say the skeleton gets closer and closer to the camera, but the framing of the of the scene both her and the skeleton are dead center uh, of the screen. So you wouldn't know to look at the skeleton. It would just sort of come into your peripheral vision. And I think Mm -hmm. seeing like a white sort of silhouette of a skeleton, just kind of like, like moving towards you while you're focused in on that scene. If you're buying into the the horror of that scene, that, that just sort of surprise you by via your peripheral vision I think that might actually be an effective little
1: jump scare. It could. It depends on where you're sitting in the theater, I guess.
0: Oh yeah, that's true. You have to be kind of close to the screen, I guess. Um, but uh, that I, I was thinking about that. I'm like, this is actually. I, I I think I would. I think that would probably be maybe effective. But uh, at any the rate, remake, it doesn't need it.
1: The remake I uh, remembered liking a lot, and I rewatched it recently, and it is maybe the most '90s, late '90s. Horror movie ever made? Yeah, I just forget the, I, the aesthetic. I
0: is. forget what the uh, what the what the production company they did this, and then they shortly after they did Thirteen Ghosts.
1: Yeah, Dark Castle.
0: Dark Castle. Uh, dark. Those Dark Castle movies are definitely have not aged well, but no, they're kind of entertaining just to remember. Like, oh, there was a time where people. <laughs> where Hollywood uh, producers just kind of looked at a Marilyn Manson music video and said, yes. "Maybe
1: that's what a horror movie is now." <laughs> and now maybe we should get Marilyn Manson to actually write some music for our movie too, on top of this. Yeah, it I would say that has his score.
0: Oh, some. really? I'd I'd forgotten yeah. that. Um, <clears throat> the one thing I will say about the remake of House on Haunted Hill is they get the relationship well. Famke Jamson and Jeffrey Rush are yeah. uh, as the Vincent Price and his wife characters. Like they're they are a
1: lot of fun. Actually, the whole cast is pretty good. Um uh Peter Gallagher as the surprise bad guy. Yeah. Um has a has some great bits too. And and the gore is actually at a time when gore hadn't quite picked back up again, where there's still pretty strict MPAA rules, uh it's got some good gore too. it's 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 a pretty entertaining movie that just looks really anachronistic now. <clears throat> yeah. Um, the next 1960 Peeping Tom this is
0: another one of those movies I'm just like saving for myself on a rainy day. Uh, but uh, absolute classic. I'm shocked it only got two votes. In fact, I'm yeah. shocked it didn't get voted last year because it is such a
1: highly regarded film. It, it's another, uh, when I was talking about last time, with 1960 being this watershed moment for modern horror uh, and all these movies having so much in common by coincidence. It really does. It's always compared to Psycho. Um, and even though it's in... Really bright colors because Powell, want, Michael Powell makes bright movies. Um, it, it does have a lot in common in that it 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 has a very uh, uh, sad and likable murderer, uh, and it's, uh, it's 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 is ahead of its time to the point where uh, everybody hated it when it came out and it almost ruined Michael Powell's career, uh, from what I understand. Uh, but it it does have a it's in that weird place where it is very dated in that uh, the way the characters talk and act, and it's definitely late '50s, but it has very modern sensibilities. Being the the center element being that uh, it's a serial killer who uh, uses a portable movie camera to record death uh, the, of the people he's killing, and is trying to capture basically them at their most terrified moment, and the. The the reveal at the end is the way he captures them being terrified as he has a mirror on the other end of the camera that is they are seeing themselves die and that is the ultimate terror, um, which is still a really disturbing concept. Uh,
0: That's it, that it makes me think. Uh, I think Catherine Bigelow took that for uh, um, Strange Days in yeah. the in the rape scene in which the person puts on the. I I don't want to have to explain the whole plot of those Strange Days, but if you know the
1: if you know the scene I'm talking about, that
0: scene is the most disturbing scene in that movie and it's the same a bit, thing.
1: There's a bit in uh Genot's, uh City of uh Living uh, uh I'm sorry, <laughs> I almost said City of Living Dead. Uh uh City of Lost Children uh where uh there are these robot men and one of them gets uh takes off his robot eyepiece so that this guy can watch him be, himself be murdered through uh the murderer's eyepiece it's definitely it's definitely been used but and, and the fact that he's recording it is is very proto uh found footage they don't like look they, they do watch the footage he watches the footage it, it it's way ahead of its time and it's it's a really great movie um that it is it's still sort of scary in the same way that that psycho is still pretty scary
0: and the next 1963 Matango, this is a Japanese film by the director of Godzilla, uh, Mushroom People, right?
1: Yeah. And it's often uh, kind of coupled with all the kaiju movies because of uh, uh, Ishiro uh, Honda directing it around the same time he was making Godzilla movies. And I think that the uh, Mushroom People have actually appeared in multimedia stuff like video games and stuff. Uh, but it's definitely not a kaiju movie. It's... Uh, it's in a weird way. It's a. Uh, it has a lot in common with Folchi's zombie, where people go to an island where there is a problem. Where pe- people are instead of turning into to zombies and zombieism being contagious, it's uh, mushroom peopleism is contagious, and they kind of turn into these mushroom people that uh, then kill each other, and then those mushroom those 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 people turn into mushroom people and get up and kill and. Uh, it's a. Uh, and and there's music uh, is is a part of it too. Uh, and in Fulci's zombie, it's sort of implied that there are voodoo drums that are actually causing the dead to rise. It's never I don't think ever spoken directly, but uh, they make good companion pieces. I think.
0: Yeah, is the um, the imagery like with the makeup effects of the mushroom people and everything? The first thing that comes to my head, uh, maybe just because it's the director of Godzilla, is. Sort of deformities from people who encountered the A bomb and the radiation yeah. from that, and birth defects and things like that. Uh, is that does, are, is that all called to mind in this film?
1: Yeah, I would say so because they're not. They say mushroom people, and you picture like uh, the things from Fantasia that dance to T- <laughs> Tchaikovsky music. Right. Uh, they're they're lumpy, gross people, uh, and they they yeah. It's it's. It's icky. And, and yeah, I would say that it could be a, a radiation sickness and poisoning and, and deformities based on that. Um, and it's, it's, it gets on a lot of those like so bad it's good lists, which is un, unfair, I think. It's, it's, it's too well made and has too much to say to, to be considered a bad
0: movie. I find a lot of those lists that – I find a lot of people who write those lists don't understand the difference between something not being realistic and something being bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think oftentimes they get uh, a co- like a tone that isn't serious or a tone that isn't an outright comedy. Anything in between those two can be confusing for people. Yeah. Like uh like there's this uh there's this so good it's so bad it's good like podcast very popular called How Did This Get Made and they talk about Superman 3 in it on one of yeah. the episodes. And during the episode they just mention all of the things that are jokes in that movie because it's kind of a comedy. And they mention those jokes as if it were mistakes, <laughs> right? And and, and, and I, it was one of those frustrating things I ever listened to because I'm like, what are you talking about? You're comedians. These this, these are this is a comedy. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's a, it, it's it's something I've I've grown I, I've grown to really not appreciate uh, mystery science theater culture. Uh, yeah, and, it, it, and it's it happens as you start to watch. Uh, genre and exploitation movies and, and start to recognize uh, how filmmakers make good cinema in less than ideal situations. And it starts, it starts to get a little annoying. And
0: and also just how things being rough around the edges can be additive and not subtractive. You know, like I, I, we're going to be talking about Messiah of evil later and Messiah of evil is a movie that is so rough around the edges and so low rent in so many ways and everything about that movie that feels just janky and off makes it scarier and better. Yeah. But if I was just trying to look for things to make fun of, there would be no shortage of it because I would. But that wouldn't be really engaging the movie on its own terms. Right. Um. Anyway, from 1963, we go to 1966. Uh, Ingmar Bergman's Persona. Uh, I do not consider this a horror film. We talked about the magician and Bergman uh, on the last uh, part. In part one, and I think same thing sort of applies here. There's definitely an existential horror uh, about sort of. It's about an actress who sort of goes into a semi-catatonic state, um, sort of realizing how pointless uh, it is to be an actress. Uh, her break comes when she's performing on stage, and she just starts laughing through the whole production, and she never stops. And and in ter- and. And then through that, it starts to explore the idea of identity and how you have to be so many people to so many people. Um, And in this relationship between the nurse and this actress, that is – I couldn't really go into any more than that because like a lot of uh, really heady Bergman movies, I don't understand this film really. And I'll Mm -hmm. just just cop to that. Like again, Bergman, not my thing. Um, I will say this is one of the most insane – like the most insanely gorgeous movies ever made. Like it's it's shocking. It's I I always feel this when I watch a Bergman movie. But I almost feel like he's cheating. Like somehow he got a camera that's better than everyone else's camera. Because his <laughs> ma- his mastery is so of like light and shadow, especially in his black and white films, is just so totally all encompassing and masterful. It's it, it it's insane. Just there are shots of this where you, the, a light just slowly fades, and over the course of like forty five seconds a woman's face goes from being lit to being in silhouette. And in every single part of that transition from light to shadow, it looks gorgeous. And it, it's an incredible looking movie. I certainly recommend it. It's not a like, oh, it's October. Let's throw on persona, you know, kind of a movie. <laughs> I understand due to the themes it tackles, um, and, uh, sort of the effectiveness for some people. Again, I couldn't get too much out of it, but I, I imagine like if this really dials into you, this could scare you to your core in a way that few other films would, like in a way that a slasher movie never could hope to. So I understand it being on the list. I don't consider it a horror movie. And in fact, if you wanted to go to a Bergman Horror movie, we can go to 1968's Hour of the Wolf, which is similar themes of sort of hopelessness and mortality and guilt uh in this case. But the actual method it goes the method it does it is through nightmarish imagery and uh, and just sort of uh, a surreal landscape where you don't know, you don 't know what is dream and what is reality. Um, I think this movie is scary as hell. I think this movie's really creepy again, gorgeous uh movie, really unnerving, but more straight ahead horror. This is actually something I would say, yeah, watch this for october
1: yeah it 's the uh, one, the only one that we 've covered here of the Bergman films that i 've actually seen. Uh, and I uh have to admit that I was a teenager at the time, and it was under the horror uh category in uh uh the local uh blockbuster and I thought that it was a werewolf movie <laughs> yeah 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 that's,
0: I thought that was a werewolf movie too
1: <laughs> and I remember watching it and being really disappointed, but then sort of going with it and and yeah it's it 's i from what i 've seen I would say either I would say this is the the one bergman movie that is a straight ahead horror movie um some people mention uh virgin spring which i don't think is a horror movie it's a it's a it's a really classy exploitation movie it's not a, I, I, I think this is the one that would be a horror movie I'm impressed with your teenage self for, for being able to just
0: surrender to it. Because you know, I, I, I would have turned it off at that age. I was,
1: I was really into Dario Argento. Oh, so there you go. if something looked good, I could usually just go with it. Yeah. And even if I was bored by everything else that was happening. Um, but I, I think this is the last uh, Bergman film that shows up here. And I just wanted to note that we had votes for three. I believe it was three Bergman films. This time, which is great because people are digging deep and what they can, I think that's cool. Uh, but I was really surprised that there were no Hitchcock movies picked this time. Yeah, I, I, did, I don't know. If you're going to go w- with a classic filmmaker that everybody acknowledges as a great filmmaker, and you're going to stretch the rule for horror, that I just assume Hitchcock was going to be the way. Everybody
0: well, did. What, what would be left in Hitchcock's oeuvre? because the Birds got voted last year, Frenzy got voted last year, Psycho uh-huh. was already off the table.
1: I would say The Lodger is pretty close to a horror movie. Yeah. Um, I think people... If we're stretching something like Persona, I would say we could stretch Vertigo. Oh, um, sure. Uh, some... Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Spellbound has got some moments. They're kind of terrifying. Uh,
0: I, I think... I think uh, uh, not Notorious.
1: Um, little- oh, yeah, Rebecca.
0: Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow I think Rebecca may have gotten voted last year.
1: Did it? Okay. Possibly. Rebecca is a horror movie, I would say. It's yeah. a gothic movie. That yeah. one, yeah. I was um, just kind of surprised. I'm not scolding people. I just think it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: I mean, again, I think we we opened this list not just to listeners this year but to Letterboxd uh people who follow me on Letterboxd and that crowd I think goes more obscure and that crowd is sort of deeper into this stuff um so it doesn't surprise me that they sort of went more art house this year than they Mm -hmm. did last year Mm -hmm.
1: um but uh yeah i think rebecca got voted last year okay and now that you said it yeah it does it does feel like i had to argue that it was a horror movie last year right because i didn't necessarily
0: feel it that way though i do think it is it, it is pretty creepy and has some very strong gothic flavor yeah but uh, next we leave the '60s. We go into
1: 1971's "Blood on Satan's Claw." What is this film, Gabe? This is a this is a kind of companion piece to "Witchfinder General." Uh, uh, it's another uh, you know period piece British movie uh, about. Uh, it, it's more like 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 the stories you hear about uh, the Salem stuff, where people are being blamed for being witches. Only in this case, uh, it's probably real. Uh, I had originally years ago kind of dismissed it as sub Wickerman kind of entertainment, like. But I watched it pretty recently, uh, and it's it's a lot better than I remember. It's a really good dramatic piece, uh, and the horror is there because of the the kind of satanic stuff that that that, that there's actual uh, supernatural uh, uh, additions. Uh, this, the the claw is as uh grown out of people kind of a slight body horror thing um and they grow patches of fur they kind of kind of become yeah little like wolf children i guess
0: this so this isn't the what what is the name of that film that is you you mentioned it on like early pre torture porn torture porn thing where it's like a witch
1: Oh, uh, uh, those are uh, Mark of the Devil. Mark of the those, Devil. Okay, I was confused two this of with Mark of the Devil. No, those are those are trash. Those are those are torture porn. Uh, by by its definition, um, but but they fit. It's the same. It's the same basic genre, I would say. Especially the first one because it's actually a British movie. The second one is a German movie, I think. Um, but no, this is it's 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 one that I, I regret having dismissed originally. It's a very good movie. Uh, and next, and I, I hope it gets a Blu-ray release in the US sometime. Oh, that'd
0: be nice. Uh, next, 1973's The Crazies, George Romero. I think I voted for this. Um, mm, I, I, think saw, you did too. I saw this recently. I am really into this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense of scale of the outbreak in terms of just getting little glimpses and images from all over the town, and it it's got this structure where you're seeing the people in the military trying to deal with the outbreak. You see the people who have been quarantined trying to escape the military. Um, you see the people who have been infected going crazy. Um, you see the individual troops on the streets and their various reactions to this situation. And it's a very, I would say it's a combination uh, about a uh, uh, film, re- you know, you uh, referencing Kent state And Vietnam and that sort of riot control and the idea of how much force is necessary and the idea of something that should be simple or that is perceived as not being big spiraling out of hand into, you know, just people get just murders happening left and right and blase attitudes about murders and cynicism happening like that is Like the movie is just the strongest horror depiction of Vietnam I've ever seen.
1: It's um, definitely Romero being the most direct he would be with any of his allegories until probably Day of the Dead, which is kind of overspoken yeah. uh, allegory. But I like Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Uh, you can totally skip the allegory if you're not into it.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, case, plenty of people do. Yeah, um, I actually I think just because it felt so fresh to me, and it's so I and they. I mean, I don't know because I. When I saw that when I saw this I said, "Oh, I like this more than any of the Living Dead movies because I I like I I like the editing. It's got really fast editing. Um uh it's got I mean, he his editing would would be very quick uh throughout the 70s. Um Dawn of the Dead yeah. most of the effects and the stunts and everything are kind of various not uh various safe things being edited together to look like a dangerous thing or a, or a gore effect or something.
1: But this yeah, is sort can, of the most cr- fast paced editing of all of his films. I, I always see it as, uh, and I, he might've even said the incomplete opposite of what I'm about to say, but it, it feels like a lead up to Dawn of the dead in both the scale and especially the editing techniques. I think that this was him at his most experimental When he's trying not... Romero did a thing for a while, and it's definitely in Dawn of the Dead, where he tries to create action without actually moving the camera. And so it's almost all created in editing. Like You could probably count the camera moves. I can't remember the crazies so well, but you could probably count the camera moves in Dawn of the Dead on your fingers. There's probably only 10 major camera moves in that movie. Yeah, Um, And I think, personally, that he went a little overload uh, in, in the crazies. There are some scenes that are uh like sort of uh kaleidoscopic in how quickly they're cut and um and i it, it always felt like uh, a movie that uh had like no budget it 's under a million dollars it is a super cheap movie um and I always felt like its budget its budget constraints were uh, h- visually uh, you could feel it holding it back from something really uh spectacular yeah which is also some of its appeal, I suppose.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, it, 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 definitely feels low budget in a way that Dawn of the dead does not. I mean, Dawn of the dead didn't have a huge budget, but it feels perfectly scoped. Yeah. Um, whereas this movie, uh, doesn't quite, this movie, you kind of, you can kind of feel them straining. Um, so yeah, I like this more than any of the dead movies when I watched this, but I re I got to see Dawn of the dead on the big screen, uh, uh, about a week ago. And even though it was just like a Blu-ray projection, really paying attention to the editing and, uh, like you said, like how he creates so much action from from still cameras, yeah. Um, I was able to actually appreciate how well he is able to do that because it is actually that's not a that's not an uncommon technique, but usually it just looks like crap. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, like usually it, it just looks really cheesy and bad, and especially like in the final shootout scene when all, when the biker gang's invading the mall, the way that that sequence is edited, his compositions are so clear and so strong. And like, he wants to storyboard the shit out of that because like, that could have been just this completely chaotic mess in which nothing means anything. And the Mm -hmm. movie just kind of loses itself because he, you know, the cameras don't move or anything, but, but it ends up being really clear and concise and exciting. And, and, I was able to appreciate the the skill in Dawn of the Dead more than I had in the past because uh, Dawn of the Dead is a, a film that always felt just a little too pokey to me. But that time it just worked like Gangbusters. So uh, I do love the Crazies, though.
1: Yeah, I, I've I've I think the Crazies is, is a movie that, as speaking as someone who was a young horror fan coming into this, and Dawn of the Dead became a personal favorite very early on. It, it felt like a disappointment because it is not. It's gory. It has a, you know some shocking scenes, but I, I think that I, it, people like me, have grown to like it, and it, uh, because we're finally able to separate it from the dead movies. Right. I don't think it's it's quite Martin levels of of special. No. I think Martin is. St- like special way uh, and the same way that the dead movies are special. I think the crazies is, is, is a one-off thing that is very, very good.
0: I I think actually, if you're going to say the one thing that makes the crazies, like the one thing, the crazies really lacks that something like Dawn of the dead and Martin don't is that the characters aren't that memorable. Yeah, that's true. Um, but I do, I do like the, the crazies quite a bit. Uh, next 1973 theater of blood, classic Vincent price film. I have not seen again, uh, saving it cuz there's only it's probably the only Vincent Price movie of this era I haven't seen.
1: Um, it 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 might be the quintessential Vincent Price. It has a lot in common uh, the story being uh about a uh uh actor who gets uh so many bad reviews that he fakes his death and he and his daughter uh exact revenge upon his critics uh via uh uh Shakespeare. So Scenes, he, he reenacts scenes from Shakespeare often with the help of those crazy homeless people that he's kind of living with uh, to create ironic deaths. So it is a little bit like uh, the uh, Dr. Fibes movies in that way. But unlike Dr. Fibes, he is not encumbered. His voice is not encumbered, so you get to have, on top of everything else, Vincent Price uh, being as campy as possible. And delivering
0: Shakespeare lines, right? And delivering Shakespeare and it's <laughs> probably the only
1: point in his career, in his film career, where he got to be, do Shakespeare. I imagine. I mean, he was in a lot of movies, so I might be forgetting something, but I, I, I think so. Um, it, it's really, really funny. Uh, even I think, even modern standards, funny. I don't think you have to be into the campiness of of uh, Vincent Price to think it's funny. <clears throat> Uh, I
0: I can't wait to see it. I mean, Abominable Dr. Fives is one of my all time favorites, so it's going to be hard to top that for it's me. It's not as
1: well made as Fives. I'll say that. Yeah, it's, it's much more seventies, so it's got a lot of handheld camera stuff. Which, but it's is, better is appealing. than. But it's better than Madhouse, which is almost a similar thing. Yeah, because yeah, it has more more uh, love thrown into it than Madhouse does. Yeah, um, though Madhouse has a certain amount of love with
0: all those clips from old
1: Vincent price yeah. movies, affectionate. Yeah. At
0: least. Um, Next is Phantom of the Paradise, 1974 Classic Brian De Palma musical Probably the only reason this didn't get more votes Is just because it's not the first thing that comes to people's minds When they think horror Though it definitely counts being a Phantom of the
1: Opera kind of a movie Right Uh, Yeah, it's it's another one that that, And I keep saying this over and over again It's another one that I like a little bit more every time I see it And at this point I actually have the soundtrack in my car And I really wish they had some of these songs at, At any karaoke place in town yeah, that but would be course. that would be great it's never to, gonna happen.
0: to be able to do. Uh, uh, s- wow, what is that? Somebody special like you?
1: Yes, that's the best one. I can do the screams too. I, I have a pretty good beef. I have a pretty good beef scream. Uh, <laughs> if if anybody wants to put a karaoke version of that out, you know, you record uh, music. Yeah, you should probably you should probably try to figure out a karaoke track for that. I yeah, I wonder. You don't always be surprised what's on YouTube as far as karaoke tracks. I'm yeah. always kind of shocked.
0: I discovered the other day that Fat Boy Slim's songs are are have karaoke tracks. <laughs> so if you want, you can do Rockefeller Skank and just stand there at a karaoke bar saying "Right about now, Funk Soul Brother" again and again and again and again. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh God! Yeah, I suppose
0: that is that is that is karaoke
1: punishment. I think
0: someone yeah. someone spills like, someone else's beer. They have to go up there and do Rockefeller Skank.
1: Or and if you want to punish the crowd, you do Freebird because it's like ten minutes of guitar solos that yeah. he's singing over.
0: I I always think the ultimate crowd punishment would be something like a really earnest, deep throated uh, performance of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, like one of the <laughs> one of those public domain songs that's on there. Yeah. And it, it's just like a midi piano in the background because it hasn't been the track hasn't been updated since 1993. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Phantom of the Paradise, wonderful the film if you haven't seen it it's an absolute must see if you have any interest at all in brian De Palma or horror films or cult films or rock musicals it's probably the best rock opera oh yeah it's the best film film film, best best film rock opera at the very least yeah
1: it's Uh, it's i it's much better than rocky horror as far as i'm concerned yeah i I don't even see a comparison yeah um and as uh, as the Blu-ray nerd, uh, AV nerd here. Uh, I have to complain a little that the newer Blu-ray versions of it have qu- uh more modern color timing, uh where the skin tones are a lot oranger now. It's kind of orange and teal thing going on. Those uh, bastards. Yeah, it really <laughs> bothers me. But the U.S. one by well, from Scream Shout Factory, whatever you want to call them, uh, they did sort of correct it. It looks better than the European Blu-rays, but. I I would I, I would buy another blu-ray if they go back to the uh old color timing. Uh so always room for improvement. Next, Salo uh-huh.
0: or 120 Days of Sodom, 1975, uh very infamous uh Pasolini film. Uh torture abounds, disturbing imagery abounds. Uh fascist uh, s- uh satire almost not even satire just like shoving your face into yeah. fascism yeah. um and and fascist mindsets very very effective disturbing movie not necessarily horror in, in as in terms of like a growing sense of dread or anything like that but um it's certainly a parade of scenes that are hard to watch and it's rightly infamous mhm um, Surprise has got has got two votes, but uh, it it does have that notoriety to it that people that even people who aren't necessarily interested in seeing a lot of disturbing movies they're gonna like this is on Criterion so they're gonna go ahead and you know and Pasolini is a is a well regarded art house filmmaker you know world filmmaker so even people who aren't necessarily into extreme cinema have probably seen Salo 120 Days
1: of Sodom. I feel like this and uh, Pink Flamingos are the two. Yeah really gross out extreme cinema pieces that all the uh, art house people have seen.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's like, it's, it's like another extreme movie. Uh, I mean, it's, I think it's well-made. I think it's well done. Yeah. Um, I don't think it is just grossness for grossness sake. I think it links it. I think it links the shocking imagery to the themes. Well, um, but it has been a while since I've seen it. Yeah. It's not entertaining by any means. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I, yeah, yeah, that is true, but I think it's worth seeing. Next is Hills Have Eyes, 1977. Uh, this is the West Craven original. I still believe this is, uh, sort of the better version of Last House on the Left. I don't, as as someone who isn't a fan of Last House on the Left, this has all of the things that I like about Last House on the Left without all the things that I hate about it.
1: Um, Yeah, it's, it's. It's a rough movie um but it it makes all those statements about about the Vietnam era ruining everybody's lives uh and making monsters out of us all um that Last House makes and and we were just talking about how uh, I uh the the only uh, he wouldn't really do any of this again until he made uh the people under the stairs he's sort of craven kind of Lost his uh, very heavy-handed but charming uh, political uh, subtext side. Yeah. For a while there, after, after this movie,
0: there must have been some kind of financial trouble in his history for it him hadn't. to have worked as prolifically and and to not pick and choose projects the way he did. Yeah. You know, to just make TV movies and to make this and that and the like. He. You know, this was a success, so you have to think that some sort of financial Something trouble happened. Happen. It was an international
1: success too. It was yeah. it was a big deal in Europe too.
0: And so um, was Last House on the Left, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And Last House on the Left actually had a lot of kind of rip offs. I I assume that Last House on the Left got uh, there. There was a, a sort of stretch between its U.S. release and European release because we didn't start getting the rip offs until uh, well into the later seventies. It feels like. Um, where, yeah, there weren't a lot... I think that part of, part of Hill's Have Eyes' uh, problem is that it covers a lot of the same ground as Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. Um, which is, I think, objectively the better movie. Uh, and I think the two of them... I, I think it just gets overshadowed, uh, which might not be fair.
0: Yeah, I, 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 would, ag- I would agree with that. Um, the, though the scene... I think one of the most shocking murder scenes in any film I've ever seen is in the assault on the camper when the mom just uh, gets just gets shot um it's it's so sudden and it's so upsetting um she's trying to stop them from stealing her baby and it's not like back off or you know it's not like they she gets pushed aside it's not like she gets battered it's not like she even gets stabbed she just gets shot and then that's her character's done it just yeah. uh, her 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 life is over before she hits the floor, and it's so quick and sudden and upsetting. It it's that's the thing that scene is that sequence is always what I remember from this movie.
1: Yeah, and it's something that Craven can do very well, and why it was too bad that he had such a downturn between Hills Have Eyes and Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I mean, there's some charming movies in there, but I don't I I can't imagine any argument convinced me that any of them are good movies really Mm -hmm. or or at least not special movies um now the next film is
0: this a last house on the left remake the last house on dead end street from 1977
1: it's it's really not the title was picked to to, it it's they picked the title to evoke last house on the left but it, it really has very little in common it's um it's it's considered a surrealist horror movie, but I get the feeling that its its surrealness is its um, amateurism, and that it's it's so independent. It is directed, produced, written, and starring the same guy, uh, Roger Watkins. Uh, and he just it's sort of vignettes and stories that sort of fit, but don't really. Uh, it's about a guy who uh, makes uh, uh, porn, basically stag films. And decides to make snuff films instead because they'll sell better. Um how, you gotta wonder how one figures that, because distribution
0: of snuff films. Uh, that's that's be gonna that's be a rough road. You know, you know the thing about snuff films? No no credits. No opening or end credits. Yeah. No
1: no ego on those sets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, I, it, I have honestly seen it maybe three at least two times, and I don't know which version I saw. I, I'm looking right now, and there's apparently a 78-minute cut, a 90-minute cut, and a 175-minute cut, which Jesus never been released. Um, I don't know which one I saw. I I did literally fall asleep the first time I saw this movie. Um, I don't remember if I was tired, but it it has this uh, respectable ability to just feel unreal. Even as it's doing its best to be uh, disturbing, frightening, pseudo snuff film, uh, it it's it's really it has a strange quality about it that I don't think was done on purpose necessarily, but uh, makes it interesting at the very least.
0: And now, next, nineteen seventy seven rituals. Um, this is what it what is this.
1: It's a deliverance ripoff from Canada. Okay. Uh but it's 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 got a lot, it's got a really good cast, um, and it's uh it gets the the part of the survival horror right where the first half almost is not a horror movie by any means. Uh and then when things start going wrong, it, it, it starts to really pick up the horror. And it's, 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 most of it, I think it was, tri- they tried to sell it as a stronger horror movie than it was, because a lot of the imagery on the video boxes um, is the few really gory moments in it. Um, but it's not a super gory movie. It's well done. It's one of the better uh, of a uh, series of deliverance ripoffs. Uh, and in movies that are not necessarily ripoffs, but inspired by, like uh, uh, Walter Hill's, uh, uh, Southern Comfort, I think, is a sort of uh, nice kind of survival horror play on, on Deliverance. Um, but it's it's pretty good. It's uh, I wouldn't put it on a top ten list, but it's pretty good.
0: Now, next, from 1981, we're leaving the 70s. We're going to the 80s. Burial Ground, Knights of Terror. I want to tell a quick story. First time I saw this was at the Music Box of Horrors. They could not figure out who owns the... Public screening rights to this, or they couldn't contact them, or something happened. So, but they knew someone, or they were able to obtain a print of it. So basically, this was a surprise movie because they couldn't advertise that they were showing it. Um, and so it had like at two a.m. the surprise movie was coming up, and no one knew what the movie was going to be, and there was buzz like, oh, maybe this is they're going to be debuting like a, a big horror movie that's coming out next month or something like that. Or some, something like that. And it turned... When the movie started, it was... And the first moment started to happen, you started hearing this, like, chatter throughout the audience. And then the first time you saw Burial Grounds, Nights of Terror, it was a fucking eruption. People lost their minds because... And I, <laughs> I had never heard of this film, but I quickly understood why. This is one of the strangest zombie movies ever made. It is on another fucking planet. The tone of it... It has really cheap, low-grade electronic music that is just all over it, and it, it feels just like a dream. Um, especially being half awake for it. The, the The complaint I make about Italian zombie movies, where it's a woman standing motionless, scared as a zombie slowly gets cl- inches closer to the camera, is amplified to an absurd level here. I I love the. I have such a fondness for this movie. It's such a bad movie, but it's fucking weird.
1: It's uh it's when uh it's the best case scenario of uh uh an Italian uh horror movie that is actually ripping off an Italian horror movie that is ripping off an American horror movie. It's,
0: <laughs> so, so it's just like it's it's that uh third Michael Keaton in, Do- in multiplicity where it's just oh, yes. it's way too fuzzy and weird,
1: which usually goes badly. You end up with a lot of really boring uh movies usually you end up with stuff like uh other there's a lot of zombie movies that like after death and uh uh killing killing birds and just boring boring movies but burial ground uh it's andrea bianchi uh is the director who really did nothing of note um i guess strip oh yeah he did strip nude for your killer we talked about that that's that's pretty good um and it's him doing everything he can to uh, make a pretend sequel to Lucio Fulci's Zombie, which was released as Zombie 2 because Dawn of the Dead was zombie in Italy. And it was actually co- this was actually called Zombie 3 when it came out in uh, <laughs> certain areas. Um, but it has stuff like, like instead of uh, the eye impalement on a splinter, they have a bit with a broken window... Um, the, the zombies themselves are knockoff versions of uh, the kind of clay pot zombies that are in uh, Fulci's movie. Um, so they just look really bizarre. Because the Fulci ones were already weird. Um, and these ones are... We don't know how they did that, so let's just cake makeup on, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the Italian zombie... Like, the American zombie
0: is, sort of emphasizes the tragedy that this was a human being who has lost all personality yeah and the, and the Italian zombie is like a walking corpse and it's sort of it's always a mask um, yeah. and, it, and it's something like a, a cannibal apocalypse or something uh no zombie apocalypse yeah. like they don't even bother doing the makeup past the neck right. <laughs> it's like it's like everything uh, It's everything above the shoulders has rotted um, and then beyond that eh.
1: and I would say zombie holocaust is the other there are two third generation rip-offs uh-huh. from this era. And those are the two. This and Zombie Holocaust are two that that are are really, really fun movies on, on their own respect. we trying to rip off everything that's already ripping off other stuff that actually work for me. Yeah. Um, but they work on different levels. This one, you're right. Is it dreamy? It's trying to be gothic. And when it fails to be gothic, it just becomes surreal. Whereas Zombie Holocaust is trying to be uh, hip and and trying to move quickly and... They're totally different uh, movies in that regard.
0: Yeah. The Burial Ground movie... also Burial Ground also has the sort of thing where they had eight zombies, but they tried to make it look like a ton of zombies. So yeah. you get that uh troll two sort of a thing where there's the one mask in troll two where instead of being eye sockets, there's just they just sculpted uh exterior eyes that look goofy and are kind of cross-eyed. So there's always the one cross-eyed goblin running around. Um, yeah, and, and in this there's th- like one really bad zombie <laughs> and, and you try to spot him every shot.
1: <laughs> I think if we dig deep enough that there is a uh, um there's probably a connection between this and Troll 2. I yeah. think the producers uh because uh the actress who uh plays the mom who gets her breast eaten by the creepy obviously not a child actor. Yeah, there is so, also uh,
0: there's a dwarf in this that it, they're pretending is an 8-year-old. Yeah. I guess because they couldn't get an eight-year-old... I, guess, I mean, I don't know. It's Italy, so they could do all sorts of shit. But I guess they didn't feel comfortable having an eight-year-old actor uh, suckling at his mom at a woman's breast and then biting it.
1: So they got a 40-year-old man to pretend to be an eight-year-old, and it's creepier. It makes it worse. And then they dub him the American... I don't know about the Italian dub, but the, the English dub gives him just this voice that makes it even worse somehow. Yeah. Um. But that that actress whose name escapes me, who plays the mom, uh, is actually the wife of one of the producers in a lot of these movies, uh-huh. um, and gets uh, horribly mangled and usually a, a state of undress throughout all of these movies. This is a,
0: v- a very special movie. If you are if you are one uh, to smoke weed and watch horror movies, highly recommend this one. Yeah. Um, next from nineteen also nineteen eighty one uh the howling joe dante the uh, sort of also ran horror movie or also ran werewolf movie because i believe that's the same year uh that american yeah. werewolf in london
1: came out um, there was a big there was a big thing back in that day where you liked one or the other and you were an, like like you know how nerds turn everything into a competition exactly yeah Nobody does that with that particular movie anymore. I don't think. But. No,
0: no, I don't. I think it would be pretty hard pressed to find a, a horror fan who thinks The Howling is legitimately better than American Werewolf in London. Um, but
1: you can bet that they will argue to the bone if there is one. If yeah, you do find one,
0: yeah. Um, I I am not a fan of this movie. Generally, it's it's got an interesting premise with the sort of self help uh, self help colony of werewolves who are trying to better themselves. And I like D Wallace in general, but I think it's I don't. I think it's in a very exciting movie.
1: It has it's not well paced. Um and it's it's got the sleaziness that that um I think works. But yeah, it's mostly the 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 concept is interesting and it makes it a nice companion piece to the uh uh nineteen seventy eight uh body snatchers I think. Yeah. Uh with the self help stuff. And it's it's got cool stuff, um uh and a really good cast but is definitely not as amazing as uh, American Werewolf, I would say.
0: Um, Though another connection to American Werewolf is that Rick Baker started
1: doing the makeup effects on this. Yeah, there was a there was a, a uh, I think uh, many, and it wasn't just Rick Baker. I think it was his his crew actually changed uh-huh. the movies. Yeah, and I think, and then it went to Rob Bottin, I believe. Rob Bottin, who uh, this was his first major thing, and he was really young at the time, so. You kind of got to give if, – even if some of the transformation bladders look a little bad but with modern eyes, you got to give him a lot of credit because he was a kid at the time basically. And yeah. He was developing his way up to the thing.
0: Right. Exactly. You, you, you got to give him credit because he eventually made the thing, which has maybe the greatest special pra- – uh, practical special effects in movie history. Yeah. Um, so from the howling, we go to 1981's Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. I was bored last night, and I didn't. I, I wanted to rewatch this. Um, I, you know, this, there is a level of craft here that I can really appreciate. I always lump this in with the first one because they're basically the same plot and basically the same things happen in it. But um, I, uh, what is the name of the director of this?
1: Is this one Steve Miner? Yeah, Steve
0: Miner. He directed this. He also did H2O, and both of those movies. He, it's just well-crafted slasher movies. They're the pacing, the, the way he builds tension through anticipatory setups and POV shots and things like that. Um, it's just sort of, uh, Friday the 13th, 2.0 almost, where it's just like an improved version. Yeah. I think it's,
1: it's definitely not one of my favorites in the series, but it has maybe the best final girl. Like, yeah. Maybe, even though Adrian King is the proto-final... Well, no, not even. I guess Texas Chainsaw Massacre would have the proto-final girl, but Adrian King was the final girl that kind of got mimicked. I mm-hmm. think that this is where the modern slasher got its handle on the idea of the final girl.
0: Yeah, I, and I would say that Friday the 13th in general is the series that is not well-known for its final girls because there haven't been many memorable ones. Right. Um. Even even Part 7, like, that character is a, a real snooze. Yeah. Um, yeah. But... Uh, yeah, part two. Uh, who's the actress in part two?
1: I can't remember her name. Uh, anyway, she's really know.
0: she's really spunky. She has a great personality. Uh, she's fun to hang out with. And the other thing that I actually I kind of appreciate about these movies, and I don't know if this was a conscious decision because I don't think everything was quite a, a solidified cliche yet in the structure, but in these, especially in uh, part in this one, you don't necessarily know who the final girl is going to be. Because she doesn't show up until – because first they start off with Adrian King and you think, oh, mm-hmm. okay, so she's going to return. But she gets killed off uh, as sort of a, a psycho sort of shocking uh, opening of that movie of, of part two. And then and then it's not until like 20 minutes into the film, like a quarter – the film is almost quarter way done that you actually meet her, uh, the final girl whose name we can't remember. Amy Steele, I looked it up Amy Steele, you don't see Amy Steele until 20 minutes in So she, you don't necessarily still... know that she's the and, and she's not virginal
1: and Right, sort of that separated was, that in was the way. part of the, the fun of it Is that she's not virginal she's, she's got, she's clearly Sexually active, even though there's no nude scenes I don't think uh, And she's actually one of the Almost like a leader Like she's not yeah. just the quiet one She's definitely not Laurie Strode Right <clears throat>
0: Um, and what's funny is that's actually true of part one as well. Adrienne King's character uh, doesn't have sex in any of the scenes, but you see that in early on that it's implied she's having a relationship with the guy who runs the camp. Yeah, and that and that uh, they have a, a, a romantic sexual relationship. So those those kind of die uh, those kind of like diehard rules of the virgin can't live uh, that sort of got perpetuated by Scream are actually kind of false because also uh Lori Strode smokes weed. Yeah. So uh, but but it's funny I mean, in part 2 she's uh she's fun and she's uh you know she's self-motivated she's sexually active but she doesn't have sex in the movie because she's on her period.
1: <laughs> oh, I is, didn't remember that.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a sequence where she's meeting up with again like part 1 she is having a relationship with the guy who runs the camp. Um and they're getting together and they're making out and she goes, I have to tell you something and like trying to stop him and but then she's just like, oh, okay and then she's making out with him and then there's a scene where Jason kills, I think, uh, Crazy Ralph, but when she wakes up in the morning in bed, he has written on her mirror and lipstick, watch out for bears. <laughs> oh, yeah. And know. earlier they imply that like bears are attracted by the scent of menstruation or whatever. So like she technically like she's not a virgin clearly, but she kind of maybe she doesn't have sex in the movie so she survives it's weird but it's, it's yeah. also just like a fun character moment yeah it <laughs> is it's it's the sort of thing you don't expect to show up in a dumb slasher movie but and I enjoy... they also
1: they also kill the handicapped guy without any sort of tragedy behind it's just like and he's dead he's just yeah he's just as good as everyone else
0: right yeah he's he, he's the best at arm wrestling and he gets the girl and he's kind of like the the hunk of
1: the movie who yeah, gets killed? But he's in a wheelchair. It's awesome. He's not Franklin. He's the he's the opposite of Franklin in a Chainsaw Massacre.
0: Right. Um. Anyway, I think the thing about Part Two that makes me not not want to be my favorites is it just doesn't really have that much of its own identity. Whereas, like, you can definitely point at Part Three and Part Four and Part Six and yeah. even Part Seven as being like these are very distinct in the series, yeah. and Part Two kind of blends in with Part yeah. One. But uh, I enjoy it uh going to another 1981 slash movie. I think this is uh, uh, just a cut above uh Friday the 13th part 2 just before dawn, another uh people getting stalked and killed in the woods while they're camping movie.
1: And I think it's maybe my favorite slasher of that era. Um but again, it 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 has more of that survival horror. It's it's a redneck horror movie. Uh it's not it's a slasher movie, but it's also a redneck horror movie. So uh it that aesthetic might push it up a bunch for me.
0: Yeah. It's a little um, grimier in that way.
1: Uh, it's by the same guy who did a uh, squirm, uh, the killer. War Joseph.
0: Movie. Uh, what's his name? I Le- met him. Lieberman. Joseph yeah. Lieberman. Yeah.
1: Uh, I think it's his best movie. Um, I think the cast is really good. Um, I think that there's some really creepy scares. Like there's not a lot of jumpy scares But uh, there's a swimming, a really creepy swimming scene where a dead body floats by. Um, There's a pseudo twist that there are actually two killers Mm -hmm. because they're twins. It's not quite a twist, but it's almost like an explanation as to why the killer can be. I I think that Lieberman may have noticed that the killer seems to be everywhere at once in these movies. Even as early as 1981. So he kind of wrote a reason in for that.
0: Uh, and, the and killers
1: it's funny really that that didn't creepy. get really
0: picked up again until scream,
1: yeah, yeah, it's true, because if um, it did get
0: picked up, the whole twist of scream wouldn't like scream wouldn't have worked as well because the, the trying to figure out who the killer is wouldn't be as fun if you had assumed from the start there
1: were two killers right exactly um, I think yeah, just for few is is the some of the best atmosphere of any of these eighties uh, slasher movies and the coolest. Uh, maybe not best, but coolest final girl in, uh, in the best uh, killing of a villain in any of these movies. I was going to, I was,
0: was going <laughs> to mention that uh, that's what, maybe the most memorable part to me is the part that Quentin Tarantino ripped off for glorious bastards. Yeah. Uh, where she just, she kills the final guy, not by like taking his weapon from him and stabbing him, but by shoving her arm down his throat. <laughs>
1: And and letting out a primal scream while doing yeah, it. Like it's, like frightening level, like holy shit scream mm-hmm. and, and like wild eyes and just shoving her arm down his throat. And the whole time the boyfriend who is not helpful at all is is utterly terrified. They keep kind of showing his point of view. And I can't remember that actor's name. He's gone on to become a pretty big uh comedic uh uh actor in his own right oh yeah uh
0: oh, yeah i, I remember a, him being George, i remember recognizing him i don't remember who he is though greg henry greg henry. oh yeah okay, that's uh, right
1: he's in slither mm-hmm. he's also in guardians of the galaxy apparently i don't remember seeing him there but yeah he he's plays in the mayor Spence in movie. slither yeah
0: he has the great line god damn it you know mr pibbs the only coke i like
1: yes um But he's just terrified by not only the fact that there's a murderer there fighting his his, uh, girlfriend, who has slowly, like, she actually becomes more sexualized as the movie goes on. She's, like, sort of virginal and ends up cutting off her pants into little cut-off shorts. And so there's this sort of, I don't know if it's intentional subtext, that, that she's kind of becoming one with the forest as bad things are happening. Yeah. And that involves becoming one with her sexuality, even though she never really... I I mean, there's never any point where she is actually virginal. I don't think, but um, and and I yeah, I just like the fact that he survives too, but he is entirely worthless in the situation and just as scared. And you just imagine their drive home after the cops come (laughs) and they have to. And he's he's just not. They're not talking.
0: The 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 sequel to (laughs) the sequel the unfilmed sequel to Just Before Dawn is just
1: force majeure. Yes. (laughs) Oh man. Yeah, that's great. Uh, um, yes,
0: it's and and it's also good. It's it, like a lot of these early slasher movies. It's before things were so solidified that they became rote and just by the numbers. So it's it's not like there isn't. Oh yeah, and there's the slut who's gonna get killed, and there's the wacky stoner character, and there's that like if it it has to stand up on its own legs as an actual movie. Yeah, um, like a lot of these early slasher movies, um, do so that. Yeah, it's a really good one. It's definitely worth seeing if you haven't seen it just before Dawn. Uh, going again, the triple threat of uh, 81 Slashers, Halloween 2. Um, I don't think I voted for this, but I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, I think pretty much everything I like about this movie is um, a combination of the score and Dean Cundy returning to do the cinematography. Yeah, it's I, very good looking. And, and just like the setting, a hospital is creepy. Even a... Even a, a a uh, ludicrously abandoned hospital, um, like this is is. Just and there a...
1: are there are a number of slashers set in hospitals, and most of them are not particularly creepy. It's it it does achieve something there. I would say.
0: Yeah, uh, it it kind of has to come up with the like it, it kind of just has to decide not to be realistic because you have a movie like a uh, uh, waiting room. Is that no? Yeah, visiting o- visiting hours. Visiting hours. Visiting hours. Is like you know completely fluorescent light lit hotel room yeah. hotel open all the, or not hotel hospital open all the time at, you know like a actual hospital is and it it's cool I like that movie a lot but it's sleazy and it's weird and it it can't be actually like spooky or creepy right because it can't really use shadows that well because actually in a hospital we need to see everything we're doing right <laughs> of Whereas the,
1: yeah, Halloween they don't two... do surgery under Dean Kundi lights, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Where Halloween two just kind of says fuck it, and it looks gorgeous as a result, and it's got that great uh, John Carpenter, Alan, what's the other uh, composer's name?
1: Uh, uh, Alan composer guy.
0: Alan composer guy and John Carpenter yeah. worked together on the music in this, and it's really good. And it kind of knows where to steal from if, if, <laughs> as well. It, it steals from Deep Red. It's, uh...
1: it's got a great Deep Red. And I really, as a Deep Red fan, I actually, it, it feels like a great theft. Yeah. Uh, the, the theft in, uh, in Friday the 13th 2 from Bay of Blood is another great theft, but doesn't feel like an homage. It just feels like a theft. Yeah. Whereas the one here with the boiling uh, water, it, it feels like an homo- a full-on homage um but
0: I think that and and it does have Jamie Lee Curtis and Donald Pleasance returning, so it's it's not even close to the original film, and I would never claim it. it is, but uh Alan Howorth, by the way. Um
1: Alan Howorth.
0: Uh who I think he did some other Halloween music at a certain point. But um it's not it it's not a knock on the first one, and certainly the things it introduces to the Halloween lore uh if you if you are the kind of person who is kind of absolutely rigidly like well if it's canon that that's how I have to view Halloween one now is that they're brother and sister like yeah. this ruins a lot but for me I'm able to just like compartmentalize and watch whenever I watch the first Halloween Lori Strode is someone who's in the wrong place at the wrong time right she is not his sister and he is not uh he does not have the mark of the thorn uh or Sam <laughs> Hay I think they don't. They don't go deep into the Celtic stuff in this one, but they do have him writing Sam Hain in blood on a on somewhere. So they sort of tie it into a mythic thing that makes it less cool to me.
1: Yeah, I feel like the, the Friday the 13th ridiculous uh, continuity is more entertaining because it makes absolutely no sense. Yeah. So, and also there... Friday Thirteenth was never as good as Halloween. I suppose is another part. The, the purity of Halloween is sort of important.
0: Yeah, this this certainly does water down the series. Whereas if Halloween was just its own thing, it would be. Sar- but I don't know. I'm able to compartmentalize like yeah, that. Which so I you don't should be able to. I don't mind that. Um, and I do. I do really, really enjoy this film as well. Uh, That's how adults watch movies. They
1: compartmentalize. <laughs>
0: You know what? Some adults have autism, Gabe. That's I suppose you're right. <laughs> like I, I'm, i, I, I if you,
1: non-spectrum if, adults,
0: right? If you're, if you're, you know, if you're just the kind of person who for whom canon and continuity are very important, that I guess that's just the kind of person you are, and that's okay. You don't that's have to okay. like. You don't have to like Halloween too, and you can say that it ruined the series. I I don't <laughs> mind you saying that. Um, House by the Cemetery, 1981. Uh, Fulci's other 1981 film. Uh, yes. This is. Was this? Did City of the Living Dead get voted
1: on last year? I hope it did. I don't remember. I think City of the Living Dead has become my favorite, but this one has grown on me because
0: I think this is the last one to get voted in of the of that uh, trilogy of the Beyond This and City of the Living Dead. Yeah, it is
1: his last really good movie. He would make a couple more decent ones after it, but it's sort of a swan song in a way. Uh, City of Living Dead is, no, this is House House by the Cemetery. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, uh, it's it, it, in some ways it is the 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 most uh, consistently well made of the whole series. I would say uh, it doesn't have the outstanding scenes that the Beyond and City of Living Dead and even Zombie have, but it has this more. Uh, we were talking about continuity; it has more visual continuity and. Uh, assuming you're not watching the weird uh, American cut that got two reels out of order, uh, which made a, a, a weirdly plotted movie even more confusing, uh, and and it's uh, it's got a really neat concept that instead of a haunted house, it is a house that has a guy. People don't explore the basement as much as they probably should when they move in, but it's a house that has a. Uh, Doctor named Dr. Freudenstein, because they needed to have double uh, reference there, uh, who is basically uh, found a way to keep himself alive by murdering people and transplanting their body parts into himself. uh, himself. And so it's basically like a haunted house, very Lucio Fulci esque haunted house movie uh, for the first almost hour and a half. And then suddenly, uh, the dad figures out what's actually going on, and the 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 climax is them battling and losing against this zombie in the basement. There's this bizarre mishmash of people, and it wasn't until it came out on Blu-ray that I noticed that they have him. He has two separate hands. He has a child's hand and an adult's hand. (laughs) That's crazy. And you don't notice it in the wide shots. They they make sure to uh, cover it, but in shots where he's grabbing someone's face. Uh, they are definitely two different hands. They have two different actors or stuntmen or whatever. It, it, it's got nice little touches like that, and, it, and it's the ghost story part makes no sense, but at the same time, is kind of touching because it kind of makes you feel better about the fact that everybody was just murdered. Because now they get, now the little boy gets to be a ghost. <laughs> it, it's it's got interesting things to say about the afterlife, and it was. Uh, the basis of a current uh, festival favorite called We Are Still Here. Oh, that's right. It, which is, uh, has references to all these uh, gothic Fulci movies, but is most directly referencing House by the Cemetery, including the character names are actually the same. If oh, that's I funny. Correctly.
0: This, is, this is a movie, the first time I saw this, the first time I saw The Beyond, the first time I saw City of the Living Dead, they were all at the music box of horrors at like, the dead of night. Like, either midnight or 2 a.m. Uh, slots. Um, so, I have actually not seen this since... I I own the, the Blue Underground DVD, but I have not seen this since uh, um, since seeing it in theaters. So, my memory of this is just a, a kaleidoscope of images that make no sense. And that... <laughs> I, I should rewatch this, because I enjoy it. But at the same time, when that happens, when my memory of a movie is almost... It's own weird living thing because it's this yeah. thing I half remembered and half dreamed and because I was passing in and out as I was watching it. I, uh, I, I like to sort of preserve that for a bit because it's fun. I remember the, when I went back and I rewatched Possession when I wasn't half asleep. It, the structure of it, I had completely misinterpreted what the actual structure of that movie was. <laughs> and it wasn't quite as interesting as I thought it was. It's still like a really, really cool, amazing, creepy, fascinating horror film. But it, it wasn't quite as compelling as I thought it was because I thought the timeline of that movie loops infinitely and it
1: doesn't. It's actually linear. Yeah, and, and, and at the same time, House House by the Cemetery, though it is still an Italian horror movie, so it, it has huge uh narrative lapses, it, it is probably the most linear of this era of Fulci movies.
0: Yeah, I should I should rewatch this though this week. Um
1: next is Dead and Buried from nineteen eighty-one. It's uh, scripted by Dan O'Bannon of uh, Alien and uh, uh, Return of the Living Dead fame. Uh, it's sort of a, a feature-length Twilight Zone episode uh, where uh, there's a really great twist at the end that um, I'm actually not going to ruin for people because I think it's that cool. Uh, even though they can probably either have already seen it or can just look it up on the Wikipedia. But it it begins with a really shocking scene where there's a a photographer uh, shooting nude footage and kind of flirting with a girl, and then townspeople just show up and beat the shit out of him, and they set him on fire. And uh, you don't know what's going on. Why is this happening? He ends up in the hospital. He survives, but then he is killed by a nurse. Um, And it follows a sheriff uh, who is trying to figure out uh, what this weird cabal is in their town, and why seemingly dead people are reappearing with different personalities, and why other people aren 't noticing that this is happening
0: uh cool and before we leave the nineteen eighty one I want to go ahead and say i think nineteen eighty one is absolutely the uh the year with the most uh movies listed this this episode or not just this episode but this year. Yeah, I think there ended up being like 12 movies from 1981. Um, and as we go into 1982, I realized I thought... I, w- I did the listing different this year, so I thought there wouldn't be any duplicates or oversights like, like happened last year. But it turns out, Cue the wing Serpent, I have here as having two votes. So it probably actually got three. Yeah, so probably Cue the Winged Serpent got three votes. We talked about Cue the wing Serpent pretty extensively, though, on the part one. Um, really cool Larry Cohen monster movie. The uh, Fun David Carradine performance. Worth seeing. I think we can go ahead and move ahead, though. Yep.
1: Uh, 1982, Next of Kin. Yep. Uh, not to be confused with the 1984 Next of Kin or the 1989 Next of Kin. <laughs> uh, Ausploitation, but but pretty classy for being considered an Ausploitation movie. Uh, I learned about it from that not-quite-Hollywood not uh, documentary. Um, and looked for it. I know that, uh, Jim talked about it. I can't remember if he actually talked about it on the Stuart Gordon podcast or if we talked about it before we were actually recording. Um, but he was a big fan of it. Yeah.
0: He voted for this. He's a big fan of this.
1: He voted for it. Okay. Um, yeah, it's a, a woman, uh, inherits a retirement home. Uh, and, uh, she's trying to settle her deceased mother's estate. And, uh, the, the, people within the retirement home that she's, I guess, uh, going to have to find out. She has to figure out what she's going to do with it. People start dying. Um, And uh, she, in the tradition of a lot of these Japanese ghost stories that are now popular, she sort of uncovers a history that explains what is going on here. Um, And it's, it's really well put together. I'm not familiar with Tony Williams directed it. I don't think I've seen any of his other movies, even though I've been kind of mainlining uh uh australian horror movies since i saw that documentary i don't think i've run into any of his other ones uh but it's it's definitely recommended i don't think it has a u.s release yet but a lot of uh, again because of that documentary a lot of uh the movies mentioned have been getting pretty nice blu-ray releases in the last couple of years yeah
0: so fingers crossed on that next Friday thirteenth, the final chapter. This is the fourth part of the series from nineteen eighty-four. This is my personal favorite uh film in the series. I voted for this. Um you got Tom Savini coming back. Great special effects. This is probably the last Friday thirteenth movie before the MPAA started to really crack down. Um mm. so this is sort of the last hurrah for the super gory deaths. Uh my personal favorite being the um saw the hacksaw to the neck uh head twist. Yeah. Um it's got uh it's got to me the best teenagers uh i mean these movies are all about sort of holding patterns uh about tension slowly building as these kids don't know what's happening around them so none of the actual storylines or character arcs or anything matter but i i find them to be the most entertaining in this episode in this uh this uh edition (laughs) of friday
1: the 13th right um it might be my favorite too it's between this and six which we'll talk about shortly it looks like um This one always used to be my favorite. Uh, It's definitely the most... uh, It feels like the... Even though it obviously wasn't the final chapter, it really does feel like a capper on the series. Uh, They have this... The first four movies have... And actually the fifth one, to a certain degree, have this griminess... Yeah. ...that was turned into slickness in later years. And this one's directed by Joseph Zito, who I... He has this innate ability to be really grimy in his movies um he did the prowler which is another really great uh post friday the 13th slasher movie uh him and uh i would say uh bill lustig have just inherit ability to make things gross without making them unattractive
0: yeah and so the we actually have four friday the 13th movies that they got voted on And there is – Friday the 13th eventually sort of became this uh, huge camp thing where where it became very aware of its own iconography and the kills got more and more over the top and ridiculous and things just got a little slicker as it went on. And I feel that there's a contingent that really likes – uh in my experience there's a contingent who their favorite Friday the 13th film is part 2 uh because part 2 is it is just like a better version of part 1 mm-hmm. um so they really enjoy that um aspect of it and it but it but it has the same feeling it's not quite it, it still feels a little naive it still it doesn't feel quite so cynical um it still like really emphasizes the woods and camping and the nature aspect to it. And then there's the contingent that really likes Part 6. Because that is... The thing that distinguishes Friday the 13th from other slasher movies is this slickness. And this icono- and this iconic killer and everything. And Part 6 is the most blown ver- overblown version of that. Where just everything is this really sharp, sort of tongue-in-cheek parody of itself. Without becoming like a wacky comedy. So there are people who really like Part 6. And then... There are people who like Final Chapter because it's sort of the the in between spot, like literally in the timeline, but also it sort of manages between the two.
1: And I think uh, I would like to champion Part Five. Yeah, the, the same way that that Halloween Three has 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 a, become uh, better regarded and was originally hated simply because uh, Mike, Michael Myers was not in it. I, I think Part Five is actually. Uh, my third favorite in the whole series uh, it has the highest body count and is the most exploitative. It j- it feels like it's, it's an outrageously uh y movie f- that somehow got a studio release. Um, and it's actually, it's, it's a predictable murder mystery, but uh, it's the only other, other one other than the first one that's actually a murder mystery. Uh and I, I hope that people learn to, to that have figured out that like if the gatekeepers die off and we're allowed to reconsider these movies without all the baggage that hit when fans first saw them. I would like Part Five to be considered one of the better ones.
0: It's funny i i'm in the uh, i'm in the position of hating part both Friday Thirteenth Part Five and Halloween Three. Without being like a fanboy who cares that the main killers are not in right. them. I just and, really and,
1: don't like them as <laughs> movies. And I, I'm not a huge fan of Friday, uh, of, of Halloween 3 beyond uh, certain scenes, but I do really like uh, Friday 13th 5. And, and it has it, it grown. You know, it, it's one that I used to actually just skip over when I would watch them. And now it's becoming one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, I think maybe it's just the thing that. That grindhouse feel you 're talking about is not the thing I like
1: about those right. movies um, right you 're more of a uh, structure and uh, uh, patterns and and characters uh, too and characters yeah they're you 're right they're they 're not very good characters I mean, there's a couple good characters in part five, but yeah they're there's the possibility of being better characters in Part 5 because of the setting at a, at a, a foster home kind of thing right. for troubled youth. There is the possibility of better characters that they don't quite manage.
0: Yeah, it does, it does not thread the needle the way that uh, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 does. Yes. Um, but at any rate, we move on to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, 1986. Uh, hysterically pitched, uh, kind of par- near parody of the first film. Uh, the the common way this is often described is Toby Hooper made the movie that people thought they saw when they saw the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, great Tom Savini effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, too over the top for some people's taste. I know Jim
1: hates this movie, but uh, I I think it's pretty fun. I don't I don't I'm I'm in between where I I I want to like it more because certain scenes are so good, and every time I watch it, it feels like it's about twenty or thirty minutes too long. Yeah. Um, but I like the idea of kind of trolling the audience that like like he's not only making the movie that people thought they saw, but he's kind of making fun of them for wanting that out of a movie. I feel
0: yeah, though that 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 doesn't lend itself necessary to making a, to make a movie. Saying why would you want this movie does not lend yourself to making a good movie. Exactly that that works holistically on its own, um, and also just uh. In in making the uh, sexuality of Leatherface so prominent, it ends up those
1: scenes are yeah
0: scuzzier than the first one in certain ways because the first one one of the things I really appreciate appreciate about it is how it can be so just like gritty and gross and grimy without being sexually exploitative.
1: Um, Well, yeah, the first the first one can be viewed from the point of view of Leatherface being some poor you know mentally deficient guy who people keep showing up at his house <laughs>
0: that was yeah, that that was that was toby hooper's take on it was leatherface yeah. having the worst day of his life he's going to be in so much yeah. trouble
1: <laughs> yeah and he's he's like genuinely childlike where yeah they sexualizing him doesn't really work it's not even like yeah it
0: yeah i agree but uh anyway texas chainsaw massacre 2 is uh pretty good
1: certainly the only good texas chainsaw massacre sequel yeah unfortunately the fourth one has all all the ingredients to actually being a good movie and it's maybe the worst one.
0: Yeah, the fourth one has the has the performance from Matthew McConaughey, but it's it feels like an even more obnoxious
1: take. The the fourth one is uh some I don't think this is true, but the fourth one feels like the jumping off point for Kevin uh in the woods. Yeah because there's, like, a cabal of people that are watching this, and there's a reason it's happening, and uh, there, it, there's, like, two-way mirrors and shit like that. I don't like remember fe- any of it, that. That's funny. It feels like, yeah, it feels like uh, Drew Goddard, uh, Godard or I don't know, however you say it, uh, and uh, Joss Whedon saw that and, like, you know, there's a good idea in this. Uh, but I don't think that actually happened.
0: Next is 1987 Stage Fright. This is uh,
1: Michelle Soavi, same director Mich- as. Mich- Michele Suave. Um, <laughs> this was uh, him. He, he, he was uh, Argento's assistant director and occasional actor. He appears in Fulci and Argento and Lamberto Bava movies. Uh, and he wanted to make his own movie, and uh, Argento was not being very supportive, apparently. Uh, the interviews are, are kind of shocking. You read like an interview with him when the movie is being made. And and the years after, and he's very supportive of Argento's uh, role in his career. And then you read more recent interviews, and he's kind of dismissive. Uh, it, it's like one of those interesting things for an Italian horror fan, to like what, what happened behind the scenes. But he went to uh, uh, Joe D'Amato, uh, uh, whose real name is hard to pronounce, uh, who makes really, really uh, uh, grimy Italian horror movies, and but who acted as a producer and, and gave... Sovi the chance to make his uh, own movie pretty much unhindered and it's very simple uh, uh a very very mid late 80s uh movie where uh, a group of uh, actors are putting together uh sort of avant-garde rock musical <laughs> and uh one of them uh injures herself and uh is uh taken to a hospital at the same time a notorious killer is taken to the hospital and on her way back he kind of hitches a ride nobody notices him and uh... the uh... the uh, impossibly uh... demanding uh... stage director uh... says everybody has to stay inside he locks the doors and hides the key and so they have to stay inside the the practice space with like you know your typical black box with like stage ringing and stuff um, and the killer just starts taking him out and they can't find the key to get back out again and uh, it's decent character work uh, and it's it, basically the, the appeal is is Suwabi makes such a good looking movie and the, the violence is really intense. Uh, it's good chainsaw kills. And the killer dons a giant hooded owl mask, really large owl mask, uh, which makes him unlike any other killer in any other slasher movie um, it's called a, a giallo movie but I don't think it is because there's no murder mystery it just happens to be made by Italians and be very stylish uh, but it's highly recommended
0: This is and there's several films called Stage Fright so this one is also Aquarius
1: Aquarius and it has some other names too and it's also the one that's called Stage Fright that is one word um, often with a capital F
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that's good yeah. That's not confusing. Um, next, Vampire's Kiss, 1988. I got to see this as a midnight movie pretty recently. Really, really good peak, kind of Nicolas Cage crazy film. Basically, the best way I could describe this as is American Psycho, if instead of a serial killer, he's a vampire, and if the twist wasn't a twist and you knew about it. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: R- or at least like it gets, it gets seeded in slowly throughout the film um that maybe this is all in his head uh really cool movie it's a good combination of funny and good looking and just like a super compelling central performance and i think a really like i mean not subtle but like just the thematic uh conceit of your boss your boss is a vampire who is trying to suck the life out of you because most of the movie involves uh Nicolas Cage tormenting this hapless secretary and they're trying to find a, a book uh, a book deal contract in in the filing system and it, it just goes to absurd levels it's wonderfully funny
1: Um, I really enjoyed this movie I'm glad you rewatched it because I didn't remember a lot about it except for the cockroach eating
0: yeah yeah I mean that's and that's just the cockroach eating is just the icing on the cake of crazy things cage does if you if you are a fan of that sort of thing if you are a fan of cage and face off or you like enjoy watching bad lieutenant port of call new orleans definitely check out vampire's kiss it's it, not it I, it I avoided. it almost it for, seems
1: like the first in this run like when he decided he was going to be a crazy actor
0: yeah yeah because this is because he started off he didn't really have enough cachet to yeah. go this direction he would make strange choices you know you watch like peggy sue got married and he's talking in this weird uh yeah, voice, but like, this is this is sort of the beginning of him going crazy, um. And I avoid this for a long time because I figured it was like vampires bite, and that it was just like some wacky '80s comedy, um. Yeah. Like I thought it was like Valley Girl, but vampire but with vampires.
1: Or the one, there's one where uh my my, my best friend is a vampire. I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, those all came out in a similar era. They,
0: but this is more of a legitimately like kind of a psychological creepy dark comedy. Um, so, definitely worth checking out. Next is Phantasm Two, nineteen eighty-eight, 1988, a.k.a. Don Coscarelli sees Evil Dead 2.
1: And got was handed a budget for yeah. the first time, and maybe only time in his entire career. But this might be his only studio-backed movie. Really? I'm pretty sure. Um, I don't think any of the... Uh, what do you call them, movies? Beastmaster, I don't think any of the other Phantasm movies. Uh, Baba Hotep had... Uh, studio release, but I don't think it was produced under studio. I think John dies at the end. Also independent yeah, film independently made. Yeah. You know, just could,
0: because of how cheap special effects are, that looks like <laughs> that, that looks like it has a budget. Yeah. Uh,
1: in the way that this does. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's nice. It's nice to see him working with a lot of, uh, money. You he, can see he knows what he's doing.
0: Yeah. I'm not, a, I'm not the biggest fan of this. I don't, I think it is just kind of an evil dead Two also ran. I've, I don't, I, it doesn't have the creepy vibes of the first Phantasm that I enjoy, but it also doesn't have the inventiveness and really smart direction of Sam Raimi. Um, mm-hmm. It's an v- exceedingly fun action horror comedy, so it's just, like, it's, it's, a, it's a crowd pleaser for sure. It's definitely something you put on with a bunch of friends, because um, there's just so many cool, like, fun moments and special effects and over-the-top things that happen but ultimately it's, i it's
1: sort of standalone too yeah i mean it has a different actor in the role which is a lot of problem for a lot of fans i know and but it really does feel like a side adventure whereas the other phantasm movies are really interlocked right um i don't know i it's it's
0: fun but i i'm, I'm not the
1: biggest fan of it I like it a lot, but and actually, part of the reason I think it, 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 it for me was I saw it on Joe Bob Briggs Monster Vision at a too young of an age. I was I was a pretty anxious kid from like ten to fifteen, probably. I uh, and I saw this before I was ready at a young age, probably nine or ten. And the uh, scene where the uh, the I don't know what you would call him. He's some sort of like, he's like the undertaker who works for the, uh, the tall man gets the, uh, uh, blade ball inside of his body. Yeah. Which in retrospect, watching it as an adult is a very funny scene. Deeply, deeply upset me as a kid. The idea of something crawling through your body and tearing it up on the inside while you're still alive (laughs) was like one of those things along with, uh, the bit in, uh, uh, American Werewolf in London, where he dreams and and he looks up from the bed and he's got the monster face. Yeah, those are two things that 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 really stuck with me for a long time it's, as as the scariest things I had seen in in any movie. Ever. It
0: can be it can be funny when you're young how intense certain things can feel and how right. like a, a young you doesn't really take into effect the sort of comic book tone of it. It's like to right. you, you just like the concept of a spiked ball digging around through your body is so real and upsetting that it doesn't matter right. what movie it's in. It's just like, oh god, I never thought of that. Oh Jesus, <laughs> like yeah, it, it, yeah and it just panics you because you're a child and you're you're not capable of dealing with that. Um, next right. is 1988's Paper House. Uh, you saw this one.
1: I watched this one for the podcast. Um, I had meant to have seen it because by Bernard Rose, who did Candyman. Um, I had no idea what to expect. It's loosely based on uh, the spirit of the beehive, apparently, very loosely based. Uh, it follows a bratty but charming girl, uh, kind of tomboy girl, who keeps falling asleep and are passing out. And she, every time she does this, she wakes up in a field outside of a house that is the same house she keeps drawing in her notebook. So it has this really neat art direction that kind of reminds me of uh, Beetlejuice where it's an actual building that, this, that that has been made for the movie that looks kind of like a black-and-white drawing, a child's black-and-white drawing. Oh, cool. Uh, and uh, she keeps adding stuff to it as she gets sicker. And according to the Wikipedia, she has mono. I didn't get that from the movie. I don't remember anybody ever saying what she was actually sick with. Um, but she's getting fevers and getting sicker and sleeping for longer periods of time, so she adds a room and draws a little boy. And that little boy... Um, turns out to have an analog in the real world, and he's in a coma. Uh, and they share a doctor, and the doctor starts sharing information about this little boy, so every time she falls asleep, she starts to want to fall asleep. So there's sort of a allegory there that, that she's sort of accepting death, I suppose. Um, and, and... Meanwhile, there's this unspoken issue with her father is not home, and you don't know if he's an abusive father. If he he has had a drinking problem, they say that, but we don't know what her relationship is with him and if the mom has divorced him or not. Um, And she draws him into the, the thing, decides it was a bad idea, and crosses him out, but it doesn't work. He then reappears. He appears in the vision as this sort of monster that can't see. He's blind. So that's where the horror parts actually kick in, is the, the little girl and this little boy who can't walk trying to hide in this, this house that she keeps drawing things for the little boy to play with, but she doesn't know how things work, so she'll like draw him a radio that doesn't work, so he'll have to actually open up the radio and fix it because uh, he's good at that kind of thing. And they're hiding in this house, and the house gets grimier and grimer because at one point she gets frustrated and throws it away and then finds it in the trash and then the, the ink has run so the world becomes darker when she goes back to it. Oh, cool. Um, and it, go, it goes on and it becomes a, a, a very clear allegory for him dying and her surviving and him kind of going to heaven and she ends up giving him, she draws a piece, a pencil into the thing so she can hand him a pencil so he can have control over his own destiny instead of depending on her. So, it's, it's really a children's movie. Yeah, I was about to ask. stuff. Scary stuff happens. I imagine the people who voted for this had seen it as a kid because it's like a, it's a well-made kids horror movie or, or dark. It's a dark fantasy. It's a very Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Uh, kind of, you know, the same way Labyrinth and Mirror Mask or, Alice in Wonder- or, or, or Spirit Away or Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's good looking. The cast is great. The little girl, there's one scene that she's terrible in, which is weird because the rest of the movie, she's amazing. Um, and there's a slightly awkward thing where the lead actress, uh, whose name escapes me, she plays Tess Trueheart and Dick Tracy is the only non-British person in the movie, and at the last minute they decided to overdub her with a British accent because they and, and it's clear that she is dubbing herself. Oh. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, it's it's got a nice '80s, late '80s kind of thing going on. Uh, and, yeah, it, I think it was released the same year as Beetlejuice. And so they have a weird amount in common, but it's much more serious than Beetlejuice. And it's got a really early Hans Zimmer score uh, that uh, is not great in the context of the movie, but it's still interesting music.
0: All right. And then speaking of children's horror films, uh, The Witches from 1990, the Nicholas Rogue film, the adaptation of the Roald Doll book. I've read the Roald Doll book. Um, this is one of those movies that... When I was six, other six-year-olds would tell me it's the scariest movie ever made. <laughs> um, yeah. I,
1: I, I, I don't remember it that well. Yeah. It was
0: scary. <laughs> so it's, it's a scary kids movie. Um, I don't I, – it has Angelica Houston in it, so that's, that, that, that's a point in its column. But I, I don't know anything about it. I haven't seen it
1: myself. It's it's very close to the book, and uh, I remember it being on Guillermo del Toro's long list of movies he was planning on directing at some point. So, there might be a remake someday. I don't know. That would be interesting.
0: Next is Day of the Beast, 1995.
1: This is a. I I didn't vote for this, but this is a great movie. Uh, It's the second movie by Alex uh, De la Iglesias, who is uh, or Iglesias, sorry, who is. Still sort of underrated in the U.S. He's had a couple of um, movies that actually got a release here. Uh, he did an English-language one called... Uh, uh, what was it called? The Oxford Murders with um, uh, Elijah Wood. Um, but he's really uh, mostly still unknown. He did a great uh, pseudo-sequel to Wild at Heart called Perita Durango. It was actually filmed in my hometown of Tucson, so that was fun. Um, and he did a great crime movie, uh, crime comedy called El, El Crimen Furpecto, the fur p- picked crime. Uh, this is his first really good movie after his uh, not very good first movie uh, called Acción Mutante. It's about a guy who, um, a, a priest, who is aware that the end of the world is coming and has uh, goes around uh, uh, a Spanish city trying to. Uh, sin as much as possible in hopes of going to hell and being there when the Antichrist's uh, location is revealed and so that he can kill the Antichrist himself. Uh-huh. So he goes to a, uh, a, a place selling rock music and meets a death metal guy, this <laughs> big, fat, goofy guy, and uh, they decide to, uh, he decides to try to help him commit as many sins as possible and they end up uh, kidnapping a TV show host... Because they think he's somehow related to it, and it's very funny, and uh, highly recommended. All right,
0: next, 1999's Outer Space. This is a uh, Peter, and I, I have trouble with his his last name, uh, Cherkasky uh, film. Peter Cherkasky is a avant-garde director. Um, he makes his films by taking footage from other films and manipulating them and and damaging them in certain ways, um, almost the way that like uh Stan Brackage uh damages the frame the the celluloid itself when he makes his films, except that in this 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 the celluloid in question is already uh another like feature film, often like a Hollywood film, so this outer space is taken from footage from the entity, which I believe got voted last year um it is uh it's I believe it's scenes of Barbara Hershey walking around her house and something happens. I haven't seen the entity, so I couldn't say exactly what part it is but Basically, it starts off as a weird, slightly warped, straight ahead, uh, black and white uh, print of this sequence where she opens the door and the music is building and it's getting creepier and creepier. And then eventually it just sort of climaxes and goes off the rails and her image starts rolling and um, things are being manipulated and things are dissolving into each other and there's double and triple exposures and the soundtrack is going apeshit and it's and it kind of to me uh especially knowing that it's uh that it's a sequence from the entity but even if you don't know what what it's from it implies like another way of depicting ghosts on film which is literally they're coming from another dimension there's one dimension in which is the thing happening on the film strip and then outer space is the space outside of the film basically um, it's really, really cool. It's a short film. It's 10 minutes long. It's on YouTube. Um, it's really, really unnerving to me in ways that, you know, cause it's avant-garde, it's hard to describe, but I voted for this one. I'm a huge fan of this movie. Jim, Jim turned me onto this. I think Bill Ackerman turned him onto it. Uh, I'm really all about outer space. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Just Google outer space 1999 and you'll find it on YouTube. Um if I would have known it was only 10 minutes long I would have thrown.
1: I would have watched it too. Oh, I should
0: have I should have <laughs> let you know, but uh Okay. Now I'll, you can watch, watch it afterwards. It. Yeah, now you can watch it later, but um so that's the end of the 90s. We go on to 2000 Ginger Snaps, a classic Canadian werewolf uh movie.
1: I'm shocked this didn't get voted last year. Yeah. I I just rewatched it cuz another yet another movie here that just got a Blu-ray release and it's it stands up it's still a really interesting uh way of, of I, I don't know, is there another uh werewolf movie that that has uh um puberty and menstruation and, and all that is that used as an allegory in any other werewolf movie? Yeah, I don't well, think
0: it is. well in the fifties there was I was a teenage werewolf, in which it's a male, but it's definitely okay. an idea of adolescent anxiety about
1: growing hair places and and, and then there's the whole thing and- about These two sisters falling apart because the older one discovers boys. Yeah, like
0: the the thing that really elevates Ginger Snaps is, uh, in addition to just being really smart premise, is the characters are so real and believable. There are these two sort of codependent goth girls who are sisters, and I've I've known people exactly like this in my life, and it's the sort of thing that just doesn't really show up in film. They're the kind of people that don't really show up in film, but they're. Just like two people who sort of keep to each other and they've just always kept each other company and they sort of exist in their own little world. Um, and it really makes that rift between them that much stronger.
1: Uh, I don't know. Did the director of this go on to really do anything else? That's Not a lot. I, I looked into it when I did a review. He mostly works in television. Uh, he did a lot of episodes of uh, Queer, Queer as Folk, actually, and uh, Blade, the series. But he is working, uh, he's one of the. Uh, uh, create co-creators of *Orphan Black*. Okay, that's an interesting which, show. Which is another female-led uh, take on uh, on a sort of fantasy sci-fi, in this case, uh, concepts. Yeah, so *Ginger Snaps*
0: really, really cool movie. If you haven't seen, I almost don't want to say too much about it because I just it's like it's it's one of the few horror movies that it doesn't really matter what your sensibility is or what kind of movies you like. It just works on every level. That if you haven't seen it, it's just like a little gift.
1: Like, here you go. Here's a great film. (laughs) The sequel, the first sequel, I haven't seen the other ones, but the first sequel is pretty good, too. It changes it to an allegory about uh, addiction. Yeah. Uh, It's pretty good. It's not as good, but it's pretty good. Mm -hmm.
0: And now the next is uh, 2001, a Claire Denis film, Trouble Every Day. Uh, I'm disappointed I didn't get a chance
1: to see this. I, I checked it out kind of at the last minute. I am entirely uh, unfamiliar with uh, Claire Denis uh, and her collaborator Jean Paul uh, Faragois or Ferego. Um I guess this is their only straight horror movie. Uh, and it, it follows that unwritten rule that every art house filmmaker has to, has to make a vampire movie that frames the rules of uh, vampirism as either or scientific uh, problem and or a metaphor for uh, social malady. Uh, <laughs> that's, the, that's
0: just the rules. That's what they do when you get your art house They card. have to.
1: Like you get to your certain, like I don't know, fifth film and you have to make a vampire movie. So like it, you know, it's got a little bit in common with Martin or Ganja and Hess or let's scare Jessica to death or Kronos Um, A lot in common with Habit, the uh, Larry Fassenden movie, Um, but it is stylistically closer to The Hunger or Abel Ferreira's Addiction, which is exactly what you would expect from an Abel Ferreira vampire movie. Um, And uh, I didn't like it that much. I was a little surprised. Uh, It's early effort in the kind of new uh, French, new extremist horror movie, stuff
0: uh oh is it extreme in that way
1: sort of uh, it was it, it, it's it's categorized as such but there were o- there's only really two scenes that would qualify um it's a pharmaceutical rep uh played by vincent gallo and his wife uh are on a uh, honeymoon in france uh and he has these horrible visions meanwhile we're seeing this footage of a woman who's played by uh uh the same woman who's in um uh, uh, the inside, uh, inside. Okay. It's like this actress who appears in a lot of these, uh, movies. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he's actually there. She's killing people and her husband is cleaning up after it. And we aren't sure she's doing something horrible. She's always bathed in blood afterwards. And her husband is covering up and her husband turns out to be a doctor. And it turns out that Vincent Gallo's character is actually in France with a, uh, alternate, uh, uh, he, he wants He wants to be there because he knows that 's where this guy lives, and that this guy 's an expert in some sort of disease that he has that causes uh uh violent and sexual impulses, and this woman is suffering from it and it it sort of sets up it 's really slow like in, in which i 'm guessing all of claire Denis' movies are i don 't know um Lots of, of of entirely wordless scenes, really long wordless scenes. That is certainly a Claire Denis uh, touch. There's, tone. it's like the kind of movie where Vincent Gallo stares at his wife's pubic hair through foggy bathwater for almost a solid minute. <laughs> okay. Um,
0: if you if you are interested in Claire Denis, she made a th- real, uh, she made sort of a interesting thriller called White Material about a woman in a unnamed African country that's going through a civil war a French woman who owns a coffee plantation who all all the other white people in the, in the country have fled, but she is sort of in denial. Um, Really good performance, really tense movie. Uh, Also, uh, Beau Travail is probably her most famous film. That's a uh, Billy Budd. It's a a Melville uh, novel adaptation, but at any rate, it's, Really, really good movie um, uh, with uh, Dennis Levant uh, from uh, Holy Motors as the lead. Um, I think Bastards she made recently, some classified as a horror movie, but I don't know.
1: Well, and she made one called I Can't Sleep that is about a killer, so I assume it has some horror in it Yeah. Uh, without having seen it. And the actress, I, I remembered her name, it's Beatrice Daly. Uh, and she was yeah she was in Inside and Livid and in a, uh, an episode of ABC's The Death recently. Um, it, it's it's a movie that is long winded without anything actually happening, and then it doesn't really. The ending is 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 unsatisfy is so unsatisfying that I feel like that was the point was to not have a, a, a the appropriate closure that they build up to. Um, the idea of either curing or not curing this disease, and then it just is dropped. Um, and uh, there are two, the two uh, kind of grotesque scenes. Uh, they, they, they're almost more cannibals than vampires. They, they just sort of have sex with people and, and tear them open and sort of lick and eat their faces. And it's got two uh, maybe unintended uh, uh, visual puns, where uh, uh, the Dali, ca- Dali character literally sucks face with the guy. She almost sucks his lips off his face. Uh-huh. And later, Vincent Gowell literally eats a victim's vagina. Uh,
0: I, I, I don't know if they have suck face. I don't know if suck face is an idiom in France. Is, is in France. an idiom
1: in, in yeah. So but I'm I, sure I,
0: that I think, the uh, eating of a vagina is intentional.
1: Yeah. I, I didn't particularly like it, but I can appreciate it on a certain level for sure.
0: Uh, next is 2004's Hotel. It's one of the two movies we haven't seen. Uh, it's an Austrian film about a maid who works at a hotel who sort of discovers something terrible happened to the last person in her position, and something strange. It's apparently kind of stripped-down horror movie. Uh, it's got a it's got a really good poster. I want to see it, but I just didn't get a chance to. Uh, I I couldn't find it anywhere. But uh, that's Hotel from 2004, not to be confused with the Mike Figgis movie. Um, Next is The Hills Have Eyes from 2006. Uh, the remake. The I I I can't really abide Aja. I don't think he's a very good director, and this this has a this has a pretty strong following, especially from that era of films. Uh, it's it's one of the more better regarded ones, but I'm not a fan of it.
1: I I'm the opposite. I think uh, Alexandre Aja is is falling, as far as I'm concerned. I I didn't think his last several movies have been very good, but I think this is the one. Uh, remake from that post 9-11 decade that I like better than the original. I like what it changes to the story. I like its um, uh, aesthetic. I like the uh, silly uh, heightened like, like not just heightened violence in that it's more gory, but heightened violence in that a killer can pick up guys with a pick. You know, he sticks them on the end of a pickaxe and swings it around with them still attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how blatant the uh, the uh, political subtext is to the point where um, the the hero quote unquote hero s- kills um, uh, one of the mutants by sticking an American flag in his throat. Um, I I just I find it the best of all that is good and bad about that era. Um, and maybe almost the quintessential, like if I wanted to explain to someone in 50 years, what post nine 11 horror was like, I would almost show them this in hostile too. And maybe the first saw, even if I don't really like the first saw. Um, it's, an, it's another one. I'm surprised it didn't get more votes because it does
0: have such a good reputation. Yeah. Um, it, it was a big movie. I'm sure <laughs> everyone has seen it. Uh, um, Next is uh, Requiem 2006. This is the other film uh, in this part that we haven't seen. It's a German film about a girl with religious, strict religious upbringing who thinks she's possessed. And uh, there's one priest, I guess, who is trying to perform an exorcism. And there's one priest who is more scientific and trying to give her more mental health care that she needs. Uh, you said that from what you've read, it doesn't,
1: you don't think it's a horror movie? It sounded more like a, uh a, a, uh... I, and again i haven't seen it but from what i was reading it sounded like it uh it, it takes apart the horror movie aspects of exorcism yeah like that it's a very it's a much more uh real world look at the the rea- the reality of of exorcism situations is what it sounded like to me
0: it still still sounds quite interesting and yeah. even just the subject matter i can understand how someone would then lump it in as a horror movie in the way that you know even martin is kind of Mm -hmm. Not a vampire movie, but it certainly deals in those tropes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Next is Trick or Treat 2007, an anthology horror film. I talked about this extensively on the last, on the uh, anthology horror bonus episode we did, so I don't want to
1: go into it anymore. Yep, I like it. It's all right. I haven't liked it as much watching it again. I think that it has diminishing returns. Yeah, um, I don't think the
0: structure does it any favors. Yeah. Um, next is 28 Weeks Later, 2007, the uh, sequel to the Danny Boyle movie. I never saw this. It's Is this PG-13? No, no. It's very R-rated. Okay. I I, I must have mistaken this for something else. I thought it was
1: it, a it's, – It's a very frustrating movie in that it has a, a very awful script that is all dependent on, on – coincidences and characters doing really stupid things and then to the point where it's, it makes so little sense that it starts to almost have a supernaturalness to it but it has some really really great scary scenes. Uh, the opening sequence where uh, uh, the main character ditches his family in effect uh, because he's so frightened uh, and is chased by you know these these, these infected zombies that can run uh, is which I think that scene was actually directed by Boyle is is r- a really intense sequence, um, and it's got some interesting political things to say about uh, the way that um, the U.S. and uh, the UN would treat a situation like like a zombie outbreak in a major country like Brit uh, Britain. But it's 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 a well made bad movie, is what I would say. Oh,
0: fair enough. Next, 2007's The Orphanage, uh, very well regarded film uh spanish horror film
1: yeah yeah a little overrated but um uh well really well put together and and uh a really uh touching ending like uh, a very per- a perfect bittersweet ending the kind of thing that i think a lot of filmmakers try to do and don't pull off
0: definitely felt like it i mean not only just because it was produced by del toro but it felt like I haven't seen it but it felt like from the way it was marketed and stuff it was in the tradition of a Devil's Backbone
1: or Pan's Labyrinth. S- sort of, yeah, it's a little more um yeah, it's a little more uh uh contemporary than those, but yes, basically the same idea.
0: All right, next we go to 2010 Black Swan, uh Darren Aronofsky's surreal psychological thriller that I think has enough surreal elements that push it out of the thriller category and one could consider it a horror. Film Very close to something like Repulsion or something, though. I don't know. I This is one of those movies I was absolutely gaga over when I saw it in theaters, and I have not watched it since. And when I think about it, I'm almost reluctant to rewatch it because it feels like it might be too over
1: the top for me now. It it is one of the few movies I've seen in theaters in a long time that actually scared me. That I I, I jumped. there There was a jump... And I don't even remember which one it was, but I remember jumping, and and I was not ready for it, and it it freaked me out. And I watched it maybe one time since, and still liked it. I think it's well put together enough. I think the the, the performances are. Uh, I mean, Portman's Portman's a little uh, a little intense, but she's very good. Um, and and the subtlety of some of the uh, the the subliminal messages is is really impressive too
0: yeah the this is a this is one of those instances where um c g i is used not to create a ghost wholesale but to subtly alter you know musculature and skin and like an image in a mirror or something um mm-hmm. to really uh, significant effect um next is the crazies the remake uh from two thousand ten um is this does this have the same sort of personality as Romero's
1: film, or is this sort of its own thing that just it's really to the it's it's really a zombie movie. It it, it actually um, I don't remember when the Walking Dead show started, but it does have a, a lot aesthetically in common with the Walking Dead show. I think uh, even if the zombies themselves are infected people, but I, if I'm remembering right, they they still eat people or at least attack them with their mouths to spread it. Yeah. Um, it's it's well put together, uh, like which I keep saying now. Uh, I remember I remember enjoying it and having no reason to ever revisit it. Um, I wouldn't say it's an improvement. It's 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 a it, it looks better than the original one in that it has a much bigger budget. But um, it, I guess it might solve some of those problems you have with the characters not being particularly interesting. Uh, T- Timothy Oliphant is a is a pretty and he plays the exact same character. He plays his good his default good guy character that he does but it's it's got its moments
0: cool next is your next 2011 uh very well regarded recent uh horror movie from Adam Wingard uh really cool premise which is what if uh a home invasion uh what if (laughs) it's basically it's it's basically a horror version of Home Alone but it it sort of tricks you into that um Mm -hmm.
1: What if this... a phone invasion was an inside job, but they forgot one thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like die hard meets Home Alone, meets the strangers. Um yeah. The thing about this movie is Adam Wingard, he got it's his filmmaking, like his direction's a little better in uh The Guest. I like this movie more than The Guest, but I think like visually the Guest makes
1: more sense. This movie is one of the ugliest fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it has that brown uh brown and uh amber i guess i would call it aesthetic yeah. um i'm not a big fan of it It didn't bother me nearly as much as it bothers you I, but... I
0: it's just like a modern indie horror thing that i think is a really really bad trend that i wish would go away which is instead of blocking a scene instead of composing shots what if we just had three cameras at all times wiggling yeah. and zooming in and out like i i guess it's trying to go for a gritty like documentary feel but you watch a movie like texas chainsaw massacre like that's certainly as gritty as can be and the cameras yeah. aren't fucking wobbling all over the place with shallow focus and that sort of thing and you watch a documentary and like if you were a docu- documentary cameraman and you held your camera the way that the camera gets held in your next you would get fired
1: <laughs> it's yeah there it, yeah, it's, it's aesthetic doesn't make any sense either because it's still got that uh, very digital uh, very produced uh digital color timing thing going on. It, it doesn't really work.
0: And, that, is, and, that, is, uh, and that, that camera work coupled with that color timing is a thing that is just pervasive, and I cannot stand it. I cannot deal with it. Um, I think that there is a way to do handheld camera that makes sense, and I think that there is a way to do can- handheld camera that makes it harder to watch your movie. Mm-hmm. And I think the latter is sort of just influenced by TV, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that, especially with horror, when you're trying to build tension and release tension and suspense, like, what you do with the camera is so goddamn important as far as making the audience worry, like, peeking around corners and, like, setting up blank spaces in the frame where things could happen. And when you just sort of remove that from your toolkit because you have to shoot everything handheld and
1: do it that way, it I I, I hate it so much. <laughs> like It's my- really my pet peeve. My theory on why this is so pervasive, other than the fact that uh, the Bourne movies were so popular, is that uh, uh, digital playback allows for uh, immediate playback. They Uh don't have to wait. And that they watch that immediate playback on a much smaller screen. And then that they edit on a much smaller screen. And I don't think that a lot of filmmakers are taking into context how large a uh, film screen is. And how much magnified all those shaky camera moves become.
0: Yeah. But I mean, even watching them at home,
1: I think it's also just, it's cheaper. It's
0: yeah. like, that's way less rehearsal time. That's way less lighting set up. Like if you just, it, you know, and there's a version of this that is like, yeah, faces like John Cassavetti, like that's a fucking movie that you absolutely need the camera to be like that because you need the actors to have the freedom of movement because yeah. that's how you get that improvisational feel and that live wire but like something like this that has like this complex plot and these twists and stuff where it's not a character piece it's just garbage um i really it is, think it... it's laziness and money i think it's i think it's well we could shoot this in you know we can we can shoot this in one week instead of a week and a half or we could shoot this in two weeks instead of in three weeks if uh if we do it this way instead of
1: having to light and frame all these individual master shots yeah, I th- I think that uh, uh, in this particular case, um, Wingard, uh, you mentioned that it gets better. Uh, he's gotten better with the guest. Yeah. If you've watched his pre uh, your next movies, how much he is getting better as a filmmaker is actually very encouraging. Oh, that's good. This, they, it, it's it's their leaps. Every every movie of his is like a leap as yeah. far as uh, him learning things. And so maybe in this case, it's that he just doesn't know better yet, but he's learning mm-hmm. things.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I don't I don't like the guest, but I don't like the script for the guest. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and it's but not a that, movie, so... That's me. Yeah, it's not a horror movie either, but hopefully... <laughs> I would... I mean, I always hope that we have interesting directors who have points of view who make horror films, so you know i hope i hope ty west my least favorite filmmaker ever i hope he ends up being like something interesting and cool that i can look back on and go oh yeah i guess he kind of he did something
1: you know yeah but. all these all these uh uh mum uh mumble gore whatever you want to call it guys wingard west uh the guy who's in uh your next uh whose name escapes me uh I've hated most of their early movies, and they are all slowly starting to grow on me as filmmakers at this point. So I think that they are, they're changing. I think that as a whole, they're becoming more interesting uh, filmmakers. And, and Wingard, uh, among all of them, is becoming the most interesting. Him and his, his partner, uh, Simon Barrett, I think is his name, yeah, the, uh, uh, the, you- the ones... I could see them going somewhere uh, uh, mainstream with what they're doing now.
0: I the guy you mentioned is Joe Swanberg and I almost feel like he is this template now where they go, well, if we make these movies cheaply like this, you know, where yeah. it's mostly handheld and we don't we don't uh fret too much over rehearsing and blocking and staging and all that and we just sort of capture these performances the best we can. Like, you know, we can make these movies really cheap and we can make like two movies a year. Like yeah. Joe Swanberg has a Takashi Miike pace to his filmmaking that yeah. there's not a single film of his that has interested me. But no, no. Uh, you know, you have to imagine if you're a horror filmmaker who's constantly trying to get projects off the ground and unable to, you're looking hungrily at someone like Joe Swanberg and being like, oh, there, there—that's another way. Yep. Um, I'm sure Ty West movies. Uh, even he—he he has a much more measured aesthetic. He doesn't do a lot of handheld stuff, but I'm sure his movies aren't that expensive either, and that—that no. that helps him uh, consistently make them. Uh, next is Absentia. Um, from 2011. This is from Mike Flanagan, uh, who went on to direct Oculus. This, I think, might be a better film just because the characters are so good. Um, it's a really interesting uh, film about two sisters who are reunited. One has recent... Her husband has gone missing. Um, and so her younger sister comes to stay with her for a while. And her younger sister just got out of rehab. so they're, And they they have sort of a friction between them, but they're also an affection between them. Um, The characters really elevate this thing. The performances are really good. Um, Eventually they realize that uh, the missing husband uh, vanished in the, in a nearby tunnel to their, in a tunnel near their house. And what it actually is, is it's playing with early like fairy mythology of of the idea of like the fairy as this, uh, this, and this was explained to me by the way, by uh, Regina, who knows this sort of thing. I don't know anything about, so I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but like a fairy, uh, like they have to leave it, uh, trinkets and stuff. And, and the fairy like captures people and it's implied that this has been happening for a while. And there's this like complex underground thing, but mostly it is about sort of these tragedies that are happening to these characters and how they deal with it. And, it also is quite scary and quite good, though it is low budget, so the scares uh, are a bit clunky in this compared to Oculus. But I, I think Absentia is a hell of a movie, and I think it's. I had I didn't hear much about it in two thousand eleven, but then again, a lot of these movies, the years we're giving are like festival dates. Oh yeah, yeah. Your,
1: your next didn't actually hit theaters until last year, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it was uh, late two thousand thirteen. Yeah. Okay. It um, was when your next hit theaters because the guest was in theaters last year. That's right. That's right. Um, but yeah, like, so I feel like Absentia came out in 2011. I haven't heard much about it. And I think after Oculus uh, was sort of an unexpectedly interesting film, people are going back and sort of recognizing Mike Flanagan. Uh, and she, per, a lot of people revisited this. It was on Netflix for a while. Um, I think it's sort of growing a following. I think he's a really cool filmmaker. I can't wait to see his next one sort of in limbo cuz the production company folded. So um who knows what that it's it, that's about a a couple who adopts an orphan who when the orphan dreams uh falls asleep his dreams come to reality around him, sort of like The Sender um or The Slayer, <laughs> which is a slasher
1: movie variant on
0: that. Oh, really? But um <laughs> He's going to direct a uh, Ouija two, which I don't. I don't necessarily. I'm not necessarily excited about that, but at least he's working. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, Absentia is definitely worth checking out. Uh, next, Lords of Salem, 2012, with Rob Zombie, uh, his most measured
1: film. Um, this it, is the kind of thing I want him to keep making. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't. N- I don't
0: like it as much as Devil's Rejects, and I don't think it's necessarily even as interesting as House of a Thousand Corpses. But I think he has taken the Devil's Rejects and House of a Thousand Corpses aesthetics and characters and 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 environments <laughs> as far as they can go, and there's yes, only going to be diminishing returns. Yes. So if he went in a new direction where he just made this sort of um image-driven, a cult. yeah, occult uh, sort of. Building on the fact that he's a like, Devil's re- uh, House of Thousand Corpses especially feels like something made by someone who primarily directed music videos. In mm-hmm. the way that the remake of House uh, House on Haunted Hill t- did, where yeah. it it is just like random shock imagery, and then it'll just cut to like 60 millimeter footage or 8 millimeter footage, and then it'll and stuff like that. And this movie feels like someone who worked on music videos, realizing that there's a better way that you can fit that into a feature film. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's still working with that kind of strength of his uh, in dealing with this kind of spooky. Because if you watch like White Zombie and Rob Zombie music videos, they're wonderful. Like they're full of really cool images and colors and like they're very evocative in the way that a lot of metal music videos uh, try to be but fail to be. Um, but they're only two minutes and thirty seconds long, so. <laughs> right, but I, um, but so I, I, I do like Lords of Salem. I, I don't quite. I think that the problem is again that it's just it hinges so much on the lead performance, um, by uh, Sherry Moon Zombie, who I'm not into. I you, think she's but, better but in this. I have to.
1: I have to admit, she actually acts in this one. She's yeah. she's not a bad actress in this movie. It just it is not. Right. If, I I,
0: if, if there was a real, like, really accomplished actress in this role, I think this movie would have been amazing. Yeah. Um, as it is, I think it's still pretty cool. Yeah.
1: Pretty cool is a good way of describing it. Yeah. Next like, is. That's your poll
0: quote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be thrilled with that. Uh, next is Starry Eyes from 2014. A uh, um, struggling actress in LA sort of sinks into this seedy underbelly of. Of the business trying to get a role I saw the first 20 minutes Of this with Regina and It was too intense for Regina so we turned it off And I never
1: went back and finished it but um. It's it's good Um, It's good For the concept and the performance And it does a good job Of uh, achieving quite a bit on a nothing Budget Um, And it sort Of falls apart at the very end When it becomes more of a straight horror movie the, the climax where she's more of a monster killing people uh, it it has sort of suffers from like shock shorthand like um, showing a lot of blood and something's where it, it's scary whereas the ideas and uh, more uh, 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 surreal and esoteric kind of scares at the beginning actually work much better for me um, but i i think it's so close to being great that it's still really worth uh would be worth watching the whole thing all the way through
0: and then next uh 2015 the the nightmare from the director of room 237 people's uh people's uh, interviews with people's and testimonies of sleep paralysis and reenactments thereof
1: yeah i watched it for for this i was planning on watching it anyway i love uh his last movie uh, my problem being that this one is sort of creepypasta the movie. Um, I'm not f- personally into uh, the uh, reenactment thing going on here. Uh, I I kind of approach some of their stories, which is really dismissive of me, but I kind of approach them the same way when someone tells me a ghost story that really happened to them, and I just sort of patiently wait for them to finish so we can talk about something else. Um, I don't have a lot of... I, I, it it doesn't appeal to me. However, the sleep paralysis is fascinating. And if it hadn't been, what makes it special is that it's not a regular documentary. But if it was just a regular documentary, I probably would have liked it a lot more because there's all these interesting things where movies like... Uh, they, they touch upon movies like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Communion and Insidious and Jacob's Ladder uh, are feeding into these very specific images that these that these people sh- who suffer from sleep paralysis share. They have these shared mythologies um, and shared hallucinations um, that I think that, that concept is fascinating and terrifying to me, that this is a real thing uh, that happens to people that even, even with their cultural differences, um, they experience in very similar ways. Uh, the, these nightmare visions, they experience very similar ones. Mm-hmm. So to me that, that it, If it that was that more been,
0: informative And more yeah, like actually which, exploring the topic As opposed to exploring these specific
1: stories You would have liked it more Right And, and which would make it a totally different movie And uh, a less special movie to other people Yeah um, Probably would not be so
0: notable Probably wouldn't got as right. much buzz about it If it exactly. was that For the third and final part of the horror movie show Be sure to tune in midnight At Halloween <laughs>
1: at Dracula's house by the sea. The orders were fine, but I choked on my wine when I learned that the main course was me.
0: A vampire named Perkins was so very fond of small gherkins, while she served the tea, she ate 43, which pickled her internal workings. <laughs>